Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Everybody and welcome to another episode of There's Still Time, the AFTN Soccer Show, broadcasting on CITR Radio 101.9 FM. I am your host Michael McCall, and I'm joined for the first part of this show by Zachary Adam Eisenheimer. Hello. Hello. How has your week been, Zach? Any good football stuff to talk about? Oh, uh, yes. Okay, let's get right into it. You'll be happy. Football has returned. Football has come home, I believe the song goes. With the home being Germany, Bundesliga is back. And obviously, the, the rest of the world, the rest of the football world was watching, seeing what they can learn from it, try to get their own leagues back, see if there's any mistakes, just what protocols are in place, everything like that. I mean, you must be delighted that it's back because I've no interest in it, I'll be honest, but obviously you you have a, a horse in the race. You're a big Bayern fan, so I mean, just pleased to see it back. Well, I mean, not just a horse in the race, but I, I, have, an, I, mean, I have an appreciation probably for 16 out of the 18 horses oh. um, in the race because I, I just love German football. The other two you would send to the glue factory? Yeah, De- Dead Bull and Hoffenheim. Yes. <laughs> Are all good Bundesliga fans would. So uh, no, I, I mean I, I I don't like like I, I say uh, said a few shows ago. I don't tweet a lot, but uh, I tweeted about this. Um, I, I basically that kind of sums up my thoughts, which are basically this: like, yes, in one sense, I am happy that I get to watch my favorite league in the world um, play football. Aside from the, the Canadian Premier League, you know, I guess my first love in of leagues in the world. Um, so I'm excited about that, and uh, I, I enjoyed that. I took in at least parts of at least five uh, of the eight games I think that have been played so far. Oh, because wow. the round is not over, Michael. There's a game tomorrow. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, which I thought the Monday games were done uh, for the season, but um, maybe they're just done at the end of the season. So maybe there's a few more. Which uh, I, I assume fans' uh, perspectives on that have not changed in Germany. But well, I hope none turn up for it. Yeah, the boycott is there. <laughs> the boycott is, is is in full effect. So in one sense, yes, uh, there I I did take some joy. I did take some enjoyment out of being able to watch uh, the these teams, these clubs, uh, these matches. Um, but in a in a another sense, 
um, it definitely lacks something. Like, yeah, uh, I like I love like I love the game. Like, like I don't do it with you because of time and family. But I, I yeah, I, I would I would love to just go watch the MSL and just hang out and, and, and just enjoy the game. And I've done that in the past. Um, so like, I love the game. It's, it's not all just about the spectacle for me, but the, the, the way the support works, especially in a country like Germany, takes it to another level. It's, it takes the whole, the, whole, the whole game, the whole experience to another level, both when you're in the stadium and when you're watching on TV. Yeah. And so for me, it was just it was not, not quite the same. Uh, it was different in Germany. Like they didn't, uh, they didn't have any music pumping in. It was literally you could hear the players and the coaches. I was going to ask about that because I, I, yeah. I didn't watch any of the games. Partly because I don't have Sportsnet on my my cable package anymore, but also I don't have any interest in in the Bundesliga. But I did wonder if they had done what the K League had done. So they they didn't use crowd fake crowd noise or anything. No, and hey, you know, some of us like Haggis, some of us like Schnitzel. It's okay. You know, we each have our own things, our own flavors that we like. But yeah, no. So there was no, um, no, no added music. I mean, they put on well, maybe not all stadiums, but some stadiums put on music like when their team scored. They would oh. put on their regular goal celebration song. Uh, like I know for sure, Dortmund did that. And uh, yeah, so but no, the atmosphere was like not even lacking. It was just non-existent, right? Which we all knew that was what it was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and so. It's, it's definitely not the same. So I wonder how much that plays into it. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example uh, of a match. Um, and so I apologize if anyone's PVR'd any of these games and hasn't watched them yet. But um, oh, what was the game? Oh, so, so Molchen Gladbach at Frankfurt. Frankfurt uh, is no, I mean, especially in these, the last, this last season of, uh, not season, the last tenure they've had in the Bundesliga, especially, They've been known for the quality of their support, vocally, visually. Uh, they've made the, their their new four stadium, uh, uh, you know, a bit of a fortress. Um, the European nights they've had there in the Europa League have been tremendous and been regarded by people not just in Germany but around around the continent. Um, and it's an it's in a very intimidating place to go. And so yeah, I think it works on two levels. One, it's not only is it intimidating for your opponents, but it's also in one sense, it's uplifting for you as players when you're at home, but it also is, there's also, it's not even just the uplifting factor, it's the, you don't want to disappoint your fans, so when they're not there, maybe you don't worry about that disappointment as much, if you know what I mean? So like most yeah. of them I came in and ended up winning, I think it was 3-1, three, three I think was the final score, 3-0 no, or 3-1, but like, I don't think that was the scoreline if fans are in that stadium. Yeah, you know what I mean. Even if it's even if it's not, even if you think the support doesn't help the players, I don't think the Frankfurt players would have let their fans down in the way that they, in how they played, if they had fans in the state in the stadium. Well, um, I know it, some it, of the comments, but that's my opinion. Some of the stuff that I, I saw, um, just reading a couple of reports from like the Guardian and things like that, they were talking about some of the mid-table teams it felt that they didn't want to be there. The teams at the top, the teams avoiding relegation, they were battling hard, but the teams that's middle of the table with nothing really to play for, they came across as teams that, yeah, they just would have rather not been back playing. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's fair, in, in one, in, at least in some respect. Like, Bayern was playing Union Berlin, 
who are kind of mid table ish, but they put up like a they put up a actually like a, a you know a good respectable fight. I'm trying to think of the other matter. Like, yeah, Dortmund. I think Schalke was possibly oh, that, the team that was that, mentioned. Sorry, that's another one. That's another one where I think if Schalke's fans are there, I don't think they let in four goals. Uh, their keep, their keep. I think it was their keeper. Both their keeper and uh, Trap at Frankfurt had let in some shocking goals. Um, and I don't think that happened. I think the, the Schalke keeper it wasn't Neubel, who the guy who's going to Bayern in the summer. Uh, it was the other guy, uh, and he he. I think let in two bad goals. And I, I don't think that happens with fans there. Mm. Like the pressure, I think, like the pressure of performing for your fans. I think usually works in, in, in a way to, to help you as opposed to to hinder you. And when they're not there, I think you lose a bit of an edge. Again, I know these are intangibles and people are into analytics say this that's all hooey and whatever, but that's that's just how I, how I, I feel about it. The vast majority of comments that I saw online or in papers or whatever, I mean, it was positive about it. And yeah, they said you'd noticed that there's no fans, but you accept for it for it is. Some folk just couldn't get over it and said, oh, it's it's not football, I can't watch that, etc., etc. And I mean, fans are obviously very important. When I think of Bundesliga, I think of Dortmund and their fans and the wall, and, and that's the first thing that springs into my head. I've watched football with low crowds, stuff like the VMSL where there's no crowds, and it's different levels of football, it's different purity of football. I genuinely do don't think I mind if fans are there or not, if the football's good. But after a while, I don't know if, if I would still feel that way. I guess I've not been watching any leagues that haven't had fans. I've been watching Belarus and Pharaohs where fans are in attendance, so there is a little bit of an atmosphere. So I don't know, I'd have to maybe... I mean, we'll talk about MLS in part two, but if MLS starts with no fans and you're watching that, after a few weeks... I might start to feel differently about it. Yeah, and and again, I think people come at it with different approaches. If you actually, if you just if you just want to watch some sport because you haven't been watching sport, maybe you don't care, or maybe you're just like, or maybe you're like, oh, this is lame without fans or whatever. But like, I like, yeah, I won't probably watch all the leagues when they come back, but I watch this league because I genuinely care about this league. Yeah, you know what I mean. So there's it's a different thing. It'd be like, yeah, if you were forced to watch the game, the games this weekend. You would have been like you probably would have probably been very very not enjoyable for you. Yeah, like if if the English league comes back, I'll watch that MLS. I mean that's the teams that I watch all the time, the leagues that I watch all the time. So you've got an interest there, and I don't know if I would have maybe got into watching the leagues that I'm watching if it was closed doors and there was no fans. It's just it's it's added a little bit of an atmosphere to it. But of course, the other aspect of it all is all the different protocols that, that are in place. So, I mean, I'll go through some of the, the stuff. The, the teams, they arrived on more than one bus so that they could keep physical distancing. So it's no one bus trying to get through the BC place crowds anymore, that kind of stuff. The face masks were, were worn by everyone as they left the buses. There was temperature checks at the stadium for all players, media, officials, security, everyone. Police patrolled outside to make sure that no fans turned up, so that was good. The magic number of people allowed in the stadium, 213. 98 in and around the pitch, so that's like players, coaches, ball boys, etc, etc. 115 in the stands, which is like security, medics, media. 
with 109 further folk outside, which was like security, VAR officials, stuff like that. So I mean, it seems a strange number, but it seems a manageable number and a realistic number. At the Bundesliga games, each had four bald people. The bald, like bald, I thought you said four bald people. Bald. I thought, oh, I can get in. Yeah, you could. Well, you could get in as media, I guess. Oh, that as well. Yeah, they, uh, because every all the balls were disinfected um, before the game and at half time, I think the kind to of play with are not just the players themselves. But I mean, who knows? So it's, it's a new normal. Would you want your balls disinfected at, at halftime? Yeah, or would you just want pulled off at halftime? I was gonna, I was going to say it depends on if I got subbed at halftime. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a terrible joke. Oh, that's, uh, that's uh, Michael. That's good. You, you're coming round to my humour. I've been spending too much time. Yeah, you have, obviously. <laughs> um, other protocols. Subs wore masks and they were physically distanced on the bench. Head coaches, though, didn't have to wear masks so that they could shout at the players and be heard. I don't think that would be a problem for Mark DeSantis. I think you'd hear him with or without a mask on. I, I mean, that would be fine. The, the players were actually sitting like in like the front row seats behind benches and stuff. Yeah, I saw a couple of photos, yeah. Yeah. And the goal celebrations were physically distancing. There were some elbow bumps after games, no handshakes, kind of like feet bumps. I mean, all in all, it seemed to go well. I haven't heard of any negative stuff. The proof's going to be the next week or two weeks if there's any positive tests come out of everything. That's, I guess, what everyone's waiting for for just now. Hopefully not, and things will carry on, because... If things don't work in Germany, this is going to set everyone back, you have to think. Yeah, Germany hopefully will set a standard in terms of being able to do this and be conscious of the risk and respond to any situations that arise. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully they can uh, set a high standard uh, and, and do things well. I was a little surprised. I was a little surprised at the nonchalantness of the celebrations. Like, yeah, they mm. were told you can't go hug each other or whatever, but like, some of them weren't even like elbow bumps. They were kind of like, do you remember the Bash Brothers in, in baseball? No. Like, like wrist to wrist. Oh. I thought it was a little too close to the hand, but you know, mm. who knows. I, I um, saw one on the news that I thought was a little bit too close as well. And I was like, oh, that's a bit. Well, one of my favorite moments during the Bayern game this, this morning, when we were watching as a family, and <laughs> my daughter turns to me, she goes, hey, Dad, I, I don't think they're staying six feet apart from each other. <laughs> I saw one clip on Twitter where some guy was definitely more than six feet away from Alfonso Davies, but he closed him down super fast. Yeah, yeah. Alfon- Let's talk about Alfonso for a brief moment. Yeah. He, um, I mean, they got all these little, uh, you know, documentaries. They got all these little clips on him at halftime of like every game. Uh, and they're not all the same, so that's kind of nice. Um, and maybe if you've been watching Sportsnet for a while, maybe they've been on there because <laughs> I've been watching Sportsnet. Um, but. Uh, like he had a he had like a respectable game. Like he he's doing you know really really well. But this game showed that like I mean part of it's probably the fact that you know he hasn't played a match in you know over two months. But um, there were probably at least like I, I wasn't keeping as close track as I was uh, earlier and and the end of last year for his appearances where I would literally just take notes on the entire game uh, on everything he did. But he, there were probably like three or four moments where he made errors that you know he wish he could have back. Now none of them mm. led to goals, so that's that's good. But yeah, the, the highlight you're talking about that's you know made the rounds. 
was just his recoverability, right? Like where the sky's breaking in and he's three or four paces behind him at least. And then he runs past the attacker yeah. and, and shuttles the ball out of play with, with the attacker unable to do anything, which is just like, uh, you know, it's unbelievable. And, you know, in these, uh, in some of these things, they're, they're flashing up at halftime. They're talking about his stats and like, I'd seen some of his stats, but I hadn't seen all of them. Like, they are, yeah, they're, it shows why he's getting the attention he's getting. It shows why he got the, the contract extension he got to 2025. Um, and, yeah, it's just, it's so, so encouraging. It's part of, like, I mean, you, it's part of the dream when you, you follow a football club, you know, especially when it's not one of a club that is, like, one of the top in the world where you get to, see some of your young players who are very talented move on and continue to better themselves to get to the level yeah. of you know being the best in their position or the best in the league they play in or the best for the national team or whatever and like we've gotten at least glimpses of all of that with Alfonso Davies and it's just it's really special and I really hope that people in Canada were watching today not just you know so you know to get the numbers in Canada and we whatever but just because it's a, it was an opportunity just to watch him play again, and it was on you know the free to air sport or the package Sportsnet or whatever it wasn't on Sportsnet World, and so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I it's just a joy. It's like just a lot of joy just watching him play football. Last thing to ask you about the the Bundesliga stuff: the five sub rule was in effect. Yeah. First time we've seen that. How do you feel that worked? Yeah, Bayern didn't use it. They only used two subs. Oh. Um, but no, it was used in some of the other games I watched. Uh, it was fine. I forgot to check the clarity in this, but uh, there was also something about they changed, like there's only certain times you could sub off or whatever. Yeah, well, you, you can yeah. only you can still only do three times during a game, right. but you That's can also make subs at halftime that doesn't count as the three times. So you can only stop right. the game three times to make a sub. The way the commentators were talking about it was like, it was like at certain intervals or something. I was like, I don't like that. But Oh, I didn't. Was, I hadn't heard you, that. No, I don't. I'm, I'm probably missing understanding but uh it was uh no i think it was i think it was fine i think it was helpful i think you know in the this, this situation where we find ourselves in it's uh helps uh mitigate you know any of these guys getting injured because they you know have had a limited um especially match practice right like they've been doing a lot of uh, individual stuff and so I, I think that's i think that's a good thing and understandable when you're in or in the situation we're in so but the bigger question will be is how how does it go in the long run? So for the rest of the Bundesliga season, assuming it all goes okay, and whatever other leagues choose to implement it, or mm. I think FIFA has told the most leagues they have to. Yeah, do it, right? they, they can all have it, sir. So. They, or they can all have it. They can choose to have it. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if how, how you know how how it's utilized, how coaches like it, how players feel about it, to see if it lasts longer than simply you know in a. a pandemic world or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, we talked about it last week. I like the idea of it in theory. I, I would maybe have it that you have to have, like, a young guy used or something like that just to make it really worthwhile. But I, I think it's I think it's good. I think you're, it'll get more players more minutes. One other thing about the, the five substitutions, which uh, I don't know if it's just Germany or it's all of Europe or, you know, whatever, but this is also the season where they changed. Uh, there's no longer match day 18 it's now it was uh, for the season's uh, match day 20 so this five sub rule also allows the, some of those players an op- more of an opportunity to 
to get into the match. And so, again, uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if these things continue to progress um, beyond uh, this, the current situation we find, it, find ourselves in, especially when you think about, like, how in some of these, you know, World Cup and Euro years, players have been played so many matches and so many minutes and been so worn down, and there's been some comments in some sectors about the quality of play at those tournaments by tired players. This might be uh, one way that you can alleviate mm. some of that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, we'll keep an eye out for that. It seems to have been a success. We'll wait and see what, what happens, if there's any fallout from it. Hopefully not. But that was Around the World with Joe Corona, German version. It's not just Germany, though, that's playing football, of course, right now. K-League returned in Korea last week, along with the Faroe Islands Premier League, as we talked about in the last show. And, of course, the Belarus Premier League has never stopped, and it is still going. Although you maybe do have to wonder for how long, because unsurprisingly, there have now been some positive tests in the league. With a couple of FC Minsk players testing positive for the coronavirus this week, forcing their team to be quarantined for two weeks, and meaning that their game this weekend with Neiman Grodno was postponed. Now, there was also comments made by an Isloch player about players at that team testing positive. The club have denied that and said that they don't know why he said that because it wasn't true. But he also had tweeted out that he was wanting better medical provisions and just better testing and protocols and protection. So it might just be that there's a little bit of a clash between clubs and player there. And it was one of their star players that that came out and said that. But the show is going on in Belarus, which means it's time for our weekly FK Sluts update. We love our sluts, the greatest team in Belarus. We love our sluts, FK Sluts. And it was a fantastic battle in store in the Belarusian Premier League this week. The battle of the top two teams heading into the weekend, Batty Borisov and FK Slutsk. And unfortunately for all you Slutsk lovers out there, they went down to a very heavy 3-0 loss at the hands of Batty, falling from 2nd to 4th in the standings in the process and out of the European places as things stand after 9 rounds of games. Still a long, long way to go, we're not even a third of the way through the season yet. But I have felt in recent weeks that it did look like FK Slutsk were maybe punching above their weight. The defence was looking right for some team picking them to pieces. That happened this week with Batty. 3-0 win that could have been so much more. With the home side opening the scoring in the fourth minute, keeping the pressure on, having a couple of goals disallowed, making it 2-0 in the 24th minute. And although Slots came back later in the half and at the start of the second half, Batty added a third in the 70th minute. And from then, it was pretty comfortably that they saw out the game. Spoiling the fun for headline writers everywhere, there was no Slutsk mastering bait this week. And you have to feel now that Batty are just going to put their pedal to the metal and just move on from now and kind of continue their, their good form of recent years and maybe have another run in the Champions League. As for Sluts, can they bounce back next weekend? They're at home to Rook Brest on Saturday. That game will be live on YouTube, as all the games have been so far. Watch the AFTN Twitter feed for that, and find out how Sluts got on in next week's AFTN Soccer Show. 
And as I mentioned, a couple of FC Minsk players have tested positive for the coronavirus. And it's surprising, really, that there, there hasn't been more, because if anyone has watched these matches, there there's not really much physical distancing in place. Fans are still going. There hasn't been a lockdown in Belarus. The Belarus president coming out and saying that he believed that the, the virus could be killed with vodka. Don't think that has been medically proven. Fans are also in attendance at the matches and when you get crowd shots you see them all sitting packed together at times, not a lot of physical distancing going on, not many of them wearing masks, so it has felt like it's a a disaster waiting to happen. Hopefully the Minsk players will be the exception to the norm and we're not going to now get a spate of positive tests and the, the league possibly thrown into disarray, especially with other leagues coming back across Europe. But the first European league to return, we talked about it in last week's show, the Faroe Islands Premier League. It returned last weekend. I chose Vikinger Gotha as my team to support in that league. And my love for watching this Belarus football and the Faroe Islands football, it's... I know it might come across as always just trying to be a little bit hipster and go out the norm, but, but genuinely... For me, this is the kind of football I really love. I love this level. It's the kind of football I've been used to watching at third-tier Scottish football for a number of years. Never been a person that's really been turned on watching the the superstars of the game. I've always more loved grassroots football. And I genuinely have fallen in love with the Faroe Islands Premier League and the Faroe Islands itself. Talked about it a little bit in last week's show and the Faroes was a place I'd always had a hankering to visit. You could get a ferry from Aberdeen to there, there was flights from Edinburgh to Tershavin. Some of my friends had been for matches in European club football, Scotland's played there a lot in Euros and World Cup qualifiers and they all spoke very highly about the the beauty of the island and the, the quaintness of the football stadiums and the friendliness of the people and it, it was a place that was on my list of things to visit it still is and it's even more so now because from watching the games the the last two weeks I genuinely have fallen in love with the place. I do not think that there is a, a football league in the world that probably has as many beautiful picturesque settings for their football stadiums. Everyone I've seen so far has just been wonderful they've been down by the water Some of them's got rolling hills in the background. There's lots of lovely little houses and huts and things just surrounding them. So many of them are so unique. Some of them are ground sharing where each club that ground shares has its own stand. There's like steep embankments and it's just a joy to watch these for me. And we're going to do a couple of features on the league on the website in the next couple of weeks. So watch out for that. Even when normal football returns, I think I'm going to find myself watching Faroe Islands football I got up at 7 o'clock this morning, we're recording this on Sunday, I got up at 7am to watch Vikinger, it was their first home game of the season, taking on Scala, went 1-0 down after I think about 8 minutes, then fought back to lead 3-1, Scala came back with some dodgy defending, the the Vikinger defence, talked a little bit about this with Sluts, I seem to pick teams that have really dodgy defences, no Whitecaps jokes here please. But they allowed Scala to get back into it. It was 3-2, but then they went on and they they ended up winning 5-2. It was a very enjoyable game, end-to-end action. So many meaty tackles as well. If you want to see some cracking old-school type challenges, this is the league for you to watch. There's like no quarters given here. And not a lot of cards handed out either. 
I signed up to Faroe Islands TV for this, tv.fo. They show some free matches on there, some you have to pay for. The Vikinger game was free this week. Stay Home Football is a YouTube channel that has started up as well and they brought us a, a couple of Faroe Islands Premier games last weekend and they brought us three this weekend as well. So I had the Vikinger game up on the laptop, put YouTube on the telly, was watching IF versus HB on that one. 3-0 win for HB. Then there was a, a second game on at 9 o'clock on the YouTube channel, EB Straymoor versus NSI Runovic. Another comfortable win in that one for NSI Runovic. And I won't go too much into details in these games in the shows because I know most of you really do not give a toss about this. But if anyone out there likes lower league football, enjoys, for example, going to TSS Rovers matches, if you just like watching games in picturesque settings, then honestly, check out the Faroe Islands football. I think once you do, you're going to be hooked. And another thing with the Faroe Islands Premier League, and this might make some people feel more comfortable watching it, there are fans in attendance, like in Belarus, but the reason that there's fans in attendance is that the coronavirus seems to be completely under control in the Faroe Islands. They've got a population of around 50,000, just under half of those living in the capital city of Tershavn. There was 187 reported cases of coronavirus on the 18 islands, all 187 recovered, no deaths recorded at all. So that's why the Faroe Islands football has come back. That's why fans are in attendance. And if you've not felt comfortable watching the Belarus League for those kind of reasons, definitely no reasons for you not to watch the Faroe Islands Premier League. Certainly adds to the atmosphere having the fans there making some noise, the goal celebrations and everything like that. It's also fun to, to watch some of the players in the likes of the Faroe Islands League and the Belarus League and wonder, oh, he's a, he's a good guy, he'd do a good job for the, the White Caps or, or he'd do a, a good job for East Fife. Always fun to do some scouting like that. And I was pretty sure that Mark DeSantis and Axel Schuster weren't watching those two leagues, but I thought they probably have been doing a little bit of scouting. Definitely the K-League that returned. I'm sure they'll have been watching the Bundesliga as well. Maybe a little bit uh, of some of the players in the Belarus Premier League. You have to feel the likes of of the Belarus League, the K-League, are definitely markets that the Whitecaps could target. So it was a conference call this week after the Whitecaps returned to voluntary individual training. Marta Santos and Axel Schuster were on the call. So I asked them if they had been doing any scouting and if any players had stood out and just are they watching these matches with a view to possibly making some signings? So here's what they had to say about that. So there's already a couple of leagues that are back. The K-League obviously came back on Friday. I've been watching the Belarus Premier League and I've started watching the Faroe Islands Premier League as well. Have you been watching any of those matches and any players that's possibly stood out for you during that? Uh, I've watched uh, the the South Korean League, but I watched the games in replay. Um, but that's the league that I've been watching. And of course, every time you watch a game and you know that it's an accessible market. So it's a market that you could potentially in a realistic way, get a player. You always take notes of the players that stand out and I share them with Axel and you always take note of that. But then there's other leagues that you're going to start watching that 
it's an unrealistic market for you at the moment. But every time we watch games from certain markets, uh, we take notes of the players that stand out and could maybe one day uh, be an option for you. Yeah, the same year. So uh, I think we got all tired out about uh, looking at old games. So I was happy to finally see some new competition. And the same way, it was interesting to see on which level this league comes back uh, regarding quality and, and shape. So, of course, I'm, I was looking at the K-League as well. And, and uh, we, we all have our uh, identified profiles, how a player should look like for our team. So if you look at any game in the world, you are looking at profiles and you're looking uh, if, you, if you see a player that maybe fits to this profile. That doesn't mean that you are still at this moment are looking for this profile or that you in general right now are looking for, for signing somebody. It's, it's only to open up your mind, to, to make some notes, to keep somebody in, in your mind and, and maybe go back later if, if you need this position. So I think nobody in our business is, is watching a game without a few percentages of, of scouting players in the same time. Marta Santos and Axel Schuster there was disappointed that neither of them mentioned Umar Bala Mohamed from FK Slutsk as a player they were watching. Maybe they just didn't want to tip their hand. I'll get on MDS though about that the next time I speak to him. But that is it for this part. We're going to continue our travels around the world with Joe Corona in the next part. And then after he gets a little bit tired with that, Joe's going to be staying at home and looking at some of the week's news from MLS, USL and the CPL. And we'll be back with all of that after this. Hi, I'm Mark Dos Santos and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Clarity just confuses me The lines drawn on the map are strange assembly When there's northerners and southerners And westenders and eastenders And sunny days in January Left spaces in my diary But the demons ever need to know What the demons ever got to see As we fall in the light of light Does the demons ever need to know What the demons ever got to see As we Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio. That was our Artist of the Month for May, Wales's Finest, The Super Furry Animals, a song called Demons from their second English studio album, Radiator, released in 1997. It's a fantastic album, it's got some of their really best stuff on it. Herman Loves Pauline, which we've played on the show before. Mountain People, which is a, a great album ender. 
a song that has a video with football connections, Play It Cool. Check that out on YouTube because it involves them kind of playing FIFA and then getting morphed into the game as characters. It's a really, really cool video. And the international language of screaming, which was nearly the song I, I picked for tonight, because that song's got some special memories for me in particular. Back in Scotland, my good friend Danny Holland, who's been in a, a number of local bands over the years, had a band called The Muck, who did some original songs, some cover versions. It was kind of just a, a fun act that they did. They kind of dressed up, did some really obscure punk covers. But one of the songs that they included in their set was the, the Super Furry Animals International Language of Screaming. Now, Danny knew how much I loved the band. I was round at his house one night and he was saying, oh, we're, we're going to play this in the in the show on Friday that I was going to. He's like, so we'll get you up on stage to sing it. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Thinking he was just kidding. So at the gig, Path Tavern in Kirkcaldy, sitting there, and then he's like, so this next song, we've, we've got a special guest that's going to come up and sing this one. And I'm thinking, no, this isn't this isn't me. This has got to be someone else because there was lots of folk from other local bands there. But no, it was me. Got me up to sing it. Remembered most of the words. And it was just uh, a fantastic feeling, really. It was like the first and only time I've sang on stage with a live band. Sadly, no video exists of that. You just have to take my word for it. It was in tune. Anyway, back to the football chat now. So let's continue our travels around the world with Joe Corona. Although mostly it has been travels around Europe, I, I do appreciate that. So we'll look now at some of the other news that has come out from European football this week. The governing body UEFA have been very busy making some statements this week. And they said they have a concrete plan to finish the European season in August. And for them that primarily means the Champions League and the Europa League, which they still plan to play the quarterfinals and the semi-finals over two legs, just with no fans there. They also said they still expect most European leagues to complete their seasons. Any leagues that curtail early or don't have their final positions settled in full for European competitions by playing the full season on the pitch, UEFA were kind of indicating that they might have to play qualifiers to have their teams included in the Champions League and the Europa League. And although a number of leagues are looking at coming back in the coming weeks, and most of them, by the looks of it, are going to be coming back by July, I still think it's a little bit pie in the sky to expect European competitions to go on between countries. You've got all these travel restrictions. Now, some of them are getting lifted across Europe. Some of them just for countries that border other countries or countries that they know haven't got maybe a high rate just now or have done well at curtailing the virus. But then you have the likes of the UK and there's a lot of English clubs and Glasgow Rangers. They're still involved in the European competitions. Anyone coming from abroad into the UK just now, they're looking at introducing a 14-day quarantine period. Which I know is kind of crazy that they haven't had that yet just now, but that looks to be something that they're enforcing. So if that was still in place, how will that affect teams coming in, for example? Because there has been a, a lot of talk, a lot of speculation that some of the problems in the UK, especially around the Liverpool area, arose from the influx of 3,000 Atletico Madrid fans for their game against Liverpool in the Champions League when Spain was going through the, the bulk of the coronavirus crisis, which seemed crazy at the time and folk have looked into it now as, you know, that maybe wasn't the brightest idea. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. 
But the idea of European competition between teams from different countries still seems so, so far away. Even August seems a little bit optimistic for this to happen. And you've still got a mixture of the European leagues, some of them calling it a day, some of them still looking at how they're going to come back, some of them with firm plans on how they're going to come back. Belgium's Juleper League, they finally redeclared Club Brew's champions on Friday. They were the first league to call their season, then UEFA stepped in and said, well, if you do, we might not let the teams play in Europe, so they kind of suspended that. Now UEFA's kind of softened their stance on that. Club Bruges were declared champions on Friday. It's their third title in five years. There will be no relegation, though, from the Juleper League. We talked in an earlier show about how in Holland, Eredivisie uh, declared their season null and void, there was going to be no relegation there either, no champions crowned. And the top two clubs in the second tier in Holland, Camber Leeuwarden and De Graafschap Dotenschem, both those clubs failed in legal action to try and get them promoted to the Eredivisie. The KNVB acknowledged that it is tough. There's always going to be losers in a situation like this. And those two clubs had had good seasons, had spent money to get promotion, and that's been taken away from them. But a judge upheld that the, the league could do that in these unprecedented times. La Liga is still looking at a June return. Clubs are allowed to take part in group training from Monday, only with a maximum of 10 players though. And that's after five players in the top two divisions have tested positive so far. So not a huge number, but it is still worrying that there are players that are testing positive. Over in the UK, Scotland maybe getting a little bit closer to finally calling an end to the season and crowning Celtic champions. It looked like there was a meeting this week where all 12 teams agreed that that was going to be the course of action. They're still going back and forward on league reconstruction with a, a number of teams coming out and saying forcing league reconstruction just for the sake of saving some teams from relegation is not ideal. And yeah, it's not ideal. But league reconstruction in Scotland is something that has been very, very badly needed for a while. The thought was it was going to go from the four divisions to a three-league structure, looking at maybe 14-14-16, promoting the winners of the Highland League and the Lowland League, because Scotland introduced a pyramid system a couple of years ago. The League 2 clubs, though, voted unanimously to throw that out, so that's dead in the water. Self-interest at total play here. They don't want two strong teams that have spent money to get into the football league then coming into the league and possibly putting their own league positions in jeopardy. Very disappointing, but apparently there is going to be another plan put forward, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. There was also a very worrying article came out this weekend where a, an expert said he would not be surprised if after all of this that there's only actually two divisions in Scotland because so many clubs are going to end up going to the wall the longer that this goes on and no fans are allowed back. Scotland's First Minister has indicated it's going to be a long, long time before fans are allowed back in stadiums. So worrying times for a number of clubs in Scottish football. In England, there were some meetings as well with the League One and League Two clubs this week. League Two clubs, they voted to end their season, agreeing on a system where it would be a points per game. We talked last week that there was maybe a chance that we were going to look at a weighted system for how many games teams had played at home, how many they'd played away. That, that was thrown out. It's just a straight points per game system. So that was all decided upon. They also, though, interestingly decided there would be no relegation from League Two into the National League. 
So where that leaves the likes of Barrow, who are top of the National League, anyone knows just now. We talked about them in a recent show. Hopefully they do get the promotion that they deserve. Interestingly though, there was no consensus in League One, where six clubs decided that they did not want to end the season. They wanted to try and find a way to finish the season. And these were clubs that were outside the automatic promotion spots naturally, that felt they could maybe get into it or get into the playoffs or whatever. It was agreed that there still would be playoffs in League 1 and League 2 to kind of decide who was going to go up. But you've got clubs in League 1 who are in the playoff spots who think they could get into the the automatic spots. And there's clubs outside the playoff spots who believe that they can get into the playoff spots. So still a mess in League 1. The Championship have said they want to try and find a way to finish their season. So we'll see what happens there. And the Premiership where... All eyes are are on just now with Project Restart. They got the green light from the government that they could go ahead and restart in June. June 12th is the date that has been provisionally put in for the, the league restarting. Although they still cannot agree on what format that will be. Will it be neutral venues? All that kind of stuff. It's still all up for debate. Teams are meeting again this week. Newcastle manager Steve Bruce has come out and said that he feels that the June 12th start date is way too soon. He feels that his team need about six weeks to to get back fit and into proper shape to try and fight relegation. Which is interesting because when you speak to coaches here, they're thinking three or four weeks would be enough to, to get their players into top shape for that. And again, unsurprisingly, most of the... Descent that is coming for a restart in the, the league and everything that goes with it. It's coming from the clubs at the bottom that are facing relegation. They're still looking to not have relegation, but it's been stated now that there will be relegation. It was also interesting as well, the UK government has come out and said that if the league does restart, live games need to be in some part on terrestrial TV, free-to-air TV. So that's very interesting because you've got companies like Sky and Amazon that have paid a lot of money for their Premier League rights. So, yeah, I mean, this has all been about money and clubs worried about TV deals and not losing money and everything like that. So if some games are going to be free to air, they're maybe going to have to pay some money back anyway. So that's an interesting twist to the saga. Who knows what the week will bring for all of that. But that is it for our travels around the world with Joe Corona. It's time now for Joe to head home and stay home as we bring you the latest news from North American leagues, from MLS to the CPL. And it's been a semi-busy week on these shores. Teams were back at training, the Whitecaps being one of them. Some teams had returned last week, some teams returned this week. Some teams have still not returned, I believe. Initially, it was 13 teams still hadn't trained, 13 teams had. I think we're down to 9 now that's not been able to get back on the pitch, but... With US states kind of reopening more and more, restrictions being lifted across the US, I'm sure we're going to see some more of them back soon. Obviously, there's still some serious problems in the likes of New Jersey, New York, even Washington State. But the Whitecaps were back on the training pitch on Tuesday. Smiles on the faces of all. Well, from what we could tell, because they were all wearing masks, but the general feeling did seem to be that everyone was happy to be back on the pitch. Most of the Whitecaps had stayed in market. There's a couple of the younger guys were allowed to head back to their families, Thomas Hassel, Gianfranco Fascineri. But everyone that could train, obviously not the still quarantine Jordi Reyna and Jessica Mary, 
were at the training pitch at UBC. Kept physically distant, of course. Everyone just doing individual training sessions, some with the ball. And I think it was just a, a general feeling of, of gladness to get out of the house. As, as Max Kripal commented, he just was so excited. He got in his car, turned his music up, and he was just enjoying the, the drive up to UBC. The rumours are still swirling that MLS is looking to return to action sooner rather than later. We've seen the date of June 22nd bandied about, we've seen July bandied about, and to me, the longer this goes on, July is obviously looking way, way more likely, because teams are going to need three or four weeks still to, to get ready, get up to match fitness. Orlando is still being held up there as the, the site to host all these teams, but there's been some other things mentioned as well. The other cities that could be involved could maybe even have up to as many as four hub cities. Vancouver not likely to be one of them with the travel restrictions into Canada from other countries just now. Although it was revealed by TSN this week that the Whitecaps and BC Lions have made inquiries about possibly hosting some games at BC Place, either with no fans or looking to have restricted fans, maybe say 10% of the overall 60,000 in attendance. Still don't really see how that is going to work and I'm not really sure... I would feel comfortable yet being in a situation like that. But at least clubs are looking and leagues are looking at ways to try and get football back. But all the rumours are still pointing to a tournament in Orlando. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But first of all, I want to bring you some audio from a couple of conference calls from this week. But what I want to bring you just now is a little bit of audio from the Whitecaps and from Sporting Kansas City just looking at the possibility of MLS returning to Orlando, what that could mean to the league, what that could mean to existing results, and just the appetite from some of those involved to, to get back into the throw of things. So we're going to hear some questions, first of all, to the Whitecaps, Mark DeSantos and Axel Schuster. Then we're going to switch to a couple of questions at the end to Sporting Kansas City's Peter Vermees. MLS is looking at a lot of different options and uh, we haven't still any of those finally approved. So they they provide us with uh, regular updates about ideas and everybody was asked to, to, to bring in his ideas also. So everybody should be involved. But uh, I can only share with you that, that we, we uh, are an active part in every subcommittee and, and helping uh, MLS wherever we can, as every other club in the league as well, and, and trying to, to offer options. But uh, uh, I would not say that, that uh, uh, every, anything of that was, uh, was finally uh, um, at a step or at a stage that, that this was a real option, so, or is a real option because, as I said, Everything is, is, is floating, everything is going on, and and then the league has to be aware of all the markets. Um, if I got it right today, only 13 clubs are able to make this phase one. So 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 many things they have to, to keep in their mind and to be aware of, so um, that it is not um, not the right thing now to mention uh, or to point to, to, to one direction that maybe would be the final solution. So. I think every club provided MLS with solutions and we did the same, but uh, not not in, 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 in such a specific way as you mentioned. 
Now, the, the talk at the moment, it does seem to be that they're pointing towards Orlando being a place where all the teams are maybe going to go. How would you personally feel about that, having to be away from your family for so long? And do you think the players would buy into that as well, being away, removed from loved ones for maybe a couple of months at a time? Like, uh, like you said, you know, everything is still in the air. Discussions are happening. We're, the league is talking about a lot of different options. Uh, so to be honest with you, when I think about this situation, and I already spoke with my wife and family about the possibility um, and how we would manage it, I see it like going to a World Cup. Uh, when you go to a World Cup, there's that month of preparation, that that month or month and a half of, of competition. It's just uh, the way it is. That's the way we have to look at it. And we have to look at it at, as... If it happens, it is a, a possibility for us to do our job in the most secure way possible. Um, but it's uh, for sure it's, it has its challenges of uh, being away from the family. But if you look at players when they go to a competition like the World Cup, there's this distance and this time away from the family that they have to face. Uh, Commissioner Garber has been talking about the the hub solution for, for quite a while now, and it, it seems to be gaining traction. I'm just curious as to, uh, in this scenario, what kind of logistics it would require from the white caps and your thoughts on why it makes this is a, a feasible solution for the league. So first of all, we have to be open for every solution that brings us back onto the pitch. And right now it looks not like that we will be all able to, to go back in our home market stadium in, in a, in, in a short time so yeah it's good that the league looks also at other solutions but none of them is approved so the, the 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 point is if i compare and say we have to look at korea and germany and and so on we we are in a different market we have uh, two countries we have uh, a lot of states and 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 three provinces in in canada so a lot of states in us so so and every every market is different so of course, there can be a situation where you have to say, we, we, we will never start with the whole league if we wait for every single market. So that's the reason why they look at, at such solutions as well. And, and if this solution is, the, is this one that helps us to come out of the gates and to play football, we will be ready at any time. And, 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 and we, will, we will love to go back on the pitch and play our game. So as again... We don't look for an ideal solution. There is no ideal solution at that time. So we, we are open for every uh, solution that the league is providing us and setting up. And if there are logistics we have to manage, we have to manage them. And every club is dealing with that. The, the only thing that is maybe different for us three clubs in Canada, that we have to respect the border and, and the rules of that. But the league is aware of that also. So, so no question, no problems with that because... Uh, in, in every single communication with the league, they are mentioning that they are also in, in exchange with uh, Ottawa about uh, these problems and solutions, and, and they will set up something that will work for everybody at the, at the end. What's the sense of, you know, from you on the Orlando plan 
and also whether you're hearing anything from your players about whether they're any worried? I'll be honest with you. We're not really brought up to speed too much about the idea of, of that plan. I mean, I've heard about it as well. The specifics, I, I, I don't know a ton. I know that there's been discussion with the players. To be honest with you, from my point of view, all, all I'm interested in is a game date because then it's easy for me to work backwards from there. It's, it's really hard as we're going forward right now, I have individual training to, to be preparing for something that we don't know yet. What is the date of that, you know, first game. And so it's really reverse engineering. I need to know the game date and then I can work backwards from there regarding the players. Obviously they're working with the players union and the CBA and the league that has nothing to do with me. So I, be honest with you, I, I have stayed completely away from that piece of it. But I will say that the tournament aspect, whether it's a tournament aspect, we've talked about one where there's four uh, cities. I've heard one city. At the end of the day, I think all of us as teams want to get back to playing games as soon as possible for so many different reasons. But uh, And I would say the players, I think, want to do that as well. But we all want to make sure we're doing it in a, in a, in a safe environment and also we're doing it in, uh, in a meaningful way. If I can follow up real quick, how much um, conversation is there among various managers uh, about the differences between various parts of the country? Because I would imagine, you know, it's, it's one way in Orlando, it's one way back east where your family in Delran is, and it's another way in Kansas City. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's so true. Um, you know, I, I've said this before, I'll say it now too, and, and that is the genesis of the individual workout started with us because I was speaking to all the players uh, on, on one day. Uh, it was one day I called them all in the same day. And I asked them all a question at the end of my conversation. Is there anything that we could do for you? And all of them said, hey, listen, it would just be great if we could get on the fields at Pinnacle at our, at our training facility, which is now named Compass Minerals National Performance Center. The idea was, and they all said, said for a man, I mean, all the guys on the team said, could we just – you know, just open up the gates and let us practice on our field. So I called the league and I said, Hey, you guys, you guys have a problem with us letting the guys just go practice on our fields. And they're like, no chance, no way, no way. So then what we did was we went back and said, there's no doubt that we could do this in a very uh, safe environment. There's no doubt because what they currently have available to them, you got to remember, you know, you got New York, and you got to say Kansas City. New York was on complete lockdown. Couldn't even go to a park. Couldn't do anything. Whereas you walk around here, you go. I go for a walk by my house. I got a or a run, and I have a, a golf course there. I'm exaggerating. Completely full. You can't find a spot. It, it, it's full. People are playing golf. People are putting on the green. People are chipping on the green. People are at the driving range, and we're allowed to participate in all the parks around here. So, what the players had available to them, in my opinion it was so much more dangerous for those, those alternatives than what we could provide at our, our private facility. And so we put a video together to show that we could do it. That's where this all started. And so a lot of the managers were calling me and asking me, you know, cause they had started to find out about the video. They wanted to see it. And that's what really pushed the league along to start to really looking at return to training uh, protocol. Now, obviously, no one really knows yet how the league is going to come back, but you guys got off to such a good start with two wins should those results stand from the two wins that you've got? Should that be taken into account? If, if we lost both of them, I'd say no. But since we won both of them, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> I mean, look, they should be a part of it, absolutely. Because 
not, 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 and not all kidding aside, we've all played two games. So we're, we're not starting the season. We're restarting the season. So should they be? Yes. And if they're not, you know, what am I going to do about it? That I'm sure the owners will be making that decision. They're not going to call me and say, what do you think? So. So that was Mark DeSantis and Axel Schuster and Peter Vermees talking a little bit about the proposed MLS tournament and what that could mean to their clubs, some some stuff around that. Now, because Zach's still on the line here, and we'll talk a little bit about the MLS tournament and some of the stuff that's come out this week about it is this is a, a tournament that might not necessarily be counting towards the league And one of the things that was suggested is it's going to be a tournament where all the teams that take part will play the same number of games. So you'll have a winner's bracket, you'll have a loser's bracket, all these teams will play games and then these points will carry on possibly into a season. I thought this tournament was going to be maybe instead of the season, but it seems to be another part of the season. So we've had two weeks of the season, then we're going to have this tournament. And then the hope is that some teams will return to their markets and play games there. It just seems a a bit of a mess. I'm not liking it. If we're going to have a tournament, I'd like it just to be the tournament. That's the season. End of. Yeah, I mean, maybe I shouldn't pass judgment until we know exactly what the the deal is. But like, as, as you described, it just sounds ridiculous. I mean, they should just do the U.S. Open Cup. I know it's bad for the Canadian teams, but yeah. just do the U.S. Open Cup as it like makes give some meaning to it. Like, oh yeah, I mean some of the a, talk was whoever have a wins this tournament where you have a losers bracket. I know. Like, well, like who's gonna watch the losers bracket on American television? But it's if and the, the, thing, if and the, the thing that isn't even a, a season or a tournament. Yeah, but if the points count towards the end of season and the playoffs and stuff, then it all has meaning. But then. If, if that was the case, maybe a strong team will be like, you know what, if I lose and get in the loser's bracket, I can win all the games in the loser's bracket and get more points. Yeah, well, here's the thing. They better start putting away the napkins and get out some paper or get out a laptop there over at MLS headquarters because this better not be one of those situations where the public doesn't know what's going on until until things have started. Mm. You know, sometimes you're like the league season's going on and they're all like halfway through. You're like, by the way, Tiebreakers are by goal differences here. You know, <laughs> tiebreakers by win. You know, this can't that that can't happen with this. Like, this, no. people need to know going into this what this is and what this isn't. Well, I mean, the CPL as well are looking at possibly the tournament. We talked about it before. Victoria was mentioned uh, as one of the possible sites. Winnipeg and New Brunswick were also mentioned as possible venues to to host a tournament as well. Both of those would be interesting. Winnipeg because it's in the middle of the country. New Brunswick because it's it's more remote and it would be an interesting an interesting start to maybe get into that province. But again, if there was a tournament, I would hope that that tournament is basically just the season and not just part of the season. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Again, depending on what's possible, right? Yeah, I I think it would there be more excitement knowing that you're going to play like a especially if it's more like a World Cup style tournament with group stages and whatever. So it's not just like one and done or whatever. yeah. Um, oh yeah, I mean but, it couldn't be one and done. You can't get all the teams in one location and be one and done. That even that for MLS it would be terrible. Stranger things have happened with North American football leagues, Michael. Mm. But no, um, my understanding is like when you 
talk about you talk about um, New Brunswick uh, that you'd be talking, I think, specifically about Moncton because that's where the you know the uh, Women's World Cup was in Moncton. Oh yeah, and uh, the stadium is, I believe, on like a university campus. And so my under, again, what I just heard of the people chewing the fat is that um, they could potentially use like the university you know dormitories as as a place where everyone stays to keep everyone separate from the public because those uh, facilities are not being used right now. I've also heard that that could be a similar case in uh, in Victoria with the, with the University of Victoria, but that's this is all just speculation and not nothing concrete. But but it'll be interesting to see what happens. You hope that well, I mean, and all this we, we obviously we hope uh, players and uh, people involved with, with our clubs are safe and you know not a exposed to to getting this virus or not exposed to passing on to those especially who are high risk but it would be nice for the canadian premier league not to have to like totally forfeit their sophomore season and to be able to yeah if it's a tournament or some kind of competition that can be bridge the gap to year three where there are supposed to be more teams coming in so i i I hope that's what happens but again ultimately you hope that None of this stuff leads to more people getting sick and, and, the, yeah. and the spread of this virus. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of other things to take into account as well because you've got staff that work for the teams traveling, you've got people under the MLS scenario maybe being away a month for training, a month or two month tournaments. You could be away for two or three months. Can people come and go? What happens if someone's wife is pregnant during that time? Can they go to the birth? Are they allowed back? All that kind of stuff has to, to kind of get addressed. If players have serious concerns, can they say, well, no, I don't want to travel, and what will the repercussions be? So I know, and Peter Vermees talked there about the, the unions have been getting involved, the players have been getting involved along the way, so at least hopefully they are being kept up to date. And, I mean, it's a lot of speculation. Stephen Goff's been a, a good guy on Twitter to kind of follow from the Washington Post. He's had a lot of this information from the MLS point of view, and David Clanahan they gave a, a chat, I think, with, the, with Sportsnet, it might have been this weekend. So we'll just keep our eyes peeled. Hopefully more firm, concrete news comes out soon. But of course, it's not just the, the players and the officials and everything like that of clubs that, that's involved. You've also got the referees to think of. And that was one of the things that pro general manager Howard Webb spoke about in a conference call this week. I was on that conference call, and we're going to bring you that in the next part. And we'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Cal Valentine. You're listening to the AFTN podcast. Shoes off, and I will 
Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. That was the Future Heads from 2004 and Hounds of Love from their self-titled debut album and the first song of tonight's Three of a Kind. If you haven't listened to the show before, the songs we're going to play at the starts of parts 3, 4 and 5 are all going to be linked in some way. Three of a Kind. Your job over the next little while is to try and work out A, what that link might be, and B, if you work it out early enough, what the third song could possibly be. Maybe you'll come up with a different link or a different song for the third one. If you do, send us a tweet at AFT in Canada. Let us know what you came up with instead. So what is this week's link going to be? You'll get a further clue at the start of part four. Now we've looked at the impact of the football shutdown around the world and here in North America in the first couple of parts of tonight's show. And with all the talk of MLS possibly returning in a two or three month tournament style format in Orlando, there's obviously been a a lot of concerns raised about that. But perhaps the forgotten men in all of this is the referees. Now I know our experiences of referees over the years kind of makes us really want to, to forget them, especially some pro referees in particular. But you can't have a game of football without the officials. Now, when it comes to the referees and the officiating team and the coronavirus protocols that are in place, there's a lot of questions around that. First of all, who oversees it? Is it going to be pro? Is it going to be the league? Is there going to be proper testing from them? Now, referees, just like the players, the club officials and everyone that would be associated with this tournament, is going to have to be basically locked away, locked down, quarantined, away from loved ones and the outside world for a couple of months. And it is a lot to ask of anyone. We've talked about that in previous shows. Now, some referees, those that fall under the pro remit, they're full-time. So this is their job. But a lot of the assistant referees, the video referees, this is kind of part-time work for them. So they have other work that they would have to kind of uproot themselves and get away from. And not everyone is going to be able to do that. You're also going to have people that aren't feeling comfortable doing that, don't want to be away from their families for various reasons. Can you have various refereeing groups coming and going to this tournament? What would it mean for them in terms of quarantine for when they first get there and a lot more stuff like that as well? And one thing that is certain when football returns is that it's going to look very different. And referees can't have social distancing on the football pitch. It's just impossible. You have to go up to players. You have to show red cards, possibly split players up that are fighting and all these other aspects that goes with, with being an official. So this week, the general manager of PRO, the professional referees organisation here in North America, did a conference call with media just to talk about a number of those issues, what football might look like for referees when they return, the training, the testing, everything like that. Also touched on things like VAR and what that's maybe going to look like when it returns. I got a chance to take part on that call on Wednesday and we want to bring you pretty much in full just now. There's the odd question here and there that I cut out along with some of the introductions and pleasantries and stuff like that. But there's a lot of interesting stuff that came out of it. I think you will find it interesting as well. So let's hear now from one of the men in the middle, Pro General Manager, Howard Webb. Who to be a referee? Get him off, get him off. What a whistle and a little dried up beat. It's no protection for the things they throw 
toilet rolls and puddles every time I blow. How are you working through this unprecedented time? You haven't had in-person contact with your referees. What are you all doing to stay in shape and stay together? Yeah. Um, hi, everybody. Um, great to have this opportunity to, to, uh, to speak to everyone. Um, yeah, of course, uh, we're, we're being impacted in the same way that everybody else is in having to stay apart. Um, in many ways, we're quite well uh, positioned to deal with that because a lot of our work throughout regular seasons anyway takes place remotely. Unlike a club, our officials are based all over the country in the US and in Canada. So a lot of our contact is done online um, remotely throughout regular seasons anyway, although of course we do really value those times when we can come together every other week for three or four days and share experiences and train together. We're missing those experiences, we're replacing them with online content. We've been really creative in trying to find ways to, to stay engaged to ensure the officials and maintain those baselines, uh, both in terms of physical fitness and in technical sharpness so that when we get the green light to go uh, back onto the field again, we're as ready as we can be um, to, uh, to deliver our refereeing services. Um, and, and we're looking forward to, to what's um, you know, going to happen in hopefully in the next few, few weeks to get us back out onto the field and doing what we love. I'm doing at ESPN kind of a story about how referees across all the different leagues are dealing with this, I hate the word, but unprecedented time. So I just wanted to ask you kind of, um, how your pay, pay structure has been changed and modified and what does that look like? And then the other question is just how much are you guys at pro in communication with the league? And are you guys, you know, part of the bigger discussions about reopening the league and kind of maybe some safety changes you would want to see when that happens? We employ um, full-time referees, as you probably know. Um, we've done that for some years, actually. We feel that's uh, really beneficial for the quality of the officiating services that we supply. The fact that we can... Um, you know, see our referees on a much more regular basis than if they were they were part time, and uh, we're able to, um, to to pay them a, a salary. Those salaries have continued for our referees, so they get a basic salary. On top of that, they do get game fees throughout normal normal times, and of course, at the moment, game fees are not being earned. Um, and we're hopeful that as many games as possible can be played when we get started again. But the uh, the salaries have continued um, in the in the normal way two weeks the referees who are not full-time such as our assistant referees our video assistant referees they uh, receive a, like a retainer payment at the start of each year then they they work on game fees and of course at the moment they're not receiving those those game fees and by the way and pro staff as well like myself we've taken an adjustment as well um very much in line with what we've seen with, with mls um for the question about contact with the league we've got a really great relationship with the leagues that we serve primarily MLS, but also USL and NWSL. And we're staying in contact with the leagues. We have um, meetings twice a week with MLS. Um, we're obviously wanting to make sure that officiating um, considerations are, are made, that people are thinking about the, the, the role that officials play, and, um, and that when we do go live, that the environment that we, we go back into is, is safe for everybody, including, including the officials as, as well. So we're, we're having really constructive dialogue as we work towards getting back onto the field in the next few weeks. You know, the various leagues and, and teams are going to set up testing programs for their players by whatever means that ends up happening, especially if, as has been reported, everybody's going to go to Orlando in a couple of weeks in MLS. Who handles getting the referees tested? Is that you guys or the union, or how does that work in terms of those procedures? Well, um, of course, testing is going to be an important part of um, 
of our return to play, um, make sure that the officials, you know, uh, go onto the field, uh, having been tested in the way that the players are as, as well. Um, so we're working with the, the competition with MLS in relation to that. Um, again, part of that collaboration, we'll probably see, although we don't know for sure, probably see our officials um, go to their nearest MLS club and, and make use of the facilities that are available there. For those officials who aren't uh, living in a market where a club is located, other provisions will be made. But most of our officials are relatively close to a club that they can drive to. So we're going to be uh, looking to, to utilise those facilities. And then whatever the, the return to play looks like, if it is in a festival type setting, then the officials will be tested uh, in the same way as, as the players because, of course, when we're out on the field, it's not uh, not possible really to socially distance for our officials when they're doing their job. And, of course, the games will be meaningful when we get started again. And they'll be officiated in the normal way, in the same the normal way that they're played. So that's going to be uh, the way that they, uh, they, they they fall into the testing protocols um, as, we, as we get started again. A couple of questions, uh, really. Firstly, um, are there any challenges that referees are going to face um, once they do get back on the pitch that maybe they wouldn't, you know, they'll have to consider where they wouldn't have had to consider previously. And then secondly, will, will officials kind of have to do anything differently? Um, there's been some speculation here in Europe about players having to tackle and then turn away uh, when making challenges and also with regards to spitting, whether that could um, draw more, more penalties. So first of all, um, we're going to work in the next few weeks to make sure that our officials are as, as ready as possible to, to perform on the field in as normal a way as possible. Uh, you know, going back up to those full levels of fitness, we're expecting the games when they get restarted again to be to be meaningful. There's going to be a lot of eyes on, on these games uh, when they go live on, on TV. And uh, therefore, you know, we, we demand good refereeing performances. Um, I'm confident that you know when the green light is given for us to restart uh, with our games that you know, it'll be in an environment that is safe and, and every consideration will have been made to make sure that the timing is right for the game to be played in as normal a way as possible um, that is still safe and uh, and that will be for the players and for the officials um, I, I don't think it's realistic to ask players to play in a different way in terms of the actual playing of the game Tackling is tackling and heading is heading and, and officiating is officiating. And that will need to take place in, in you know, a, normal, a normal way. Some other measures could be taken to, uh, to ensure that um, you know, un unnecessary risks aren't taken. You know, Pre-game handshakes, for example, were, was something that was already considered before we had the shutdown. And, and I'm sure those sort of things will be considered again. And we're also seeing some other adjustments that, uh, that may, be, uh, may be introduced, such as the, the utilisation of additional numbers of subs you know and these are these are sensible things aren't they when we're coming into a phase of the game where uh, you know, the cadence of games could be higher than normal um, we're seeing players coming back after you know periods of being away from the game so these things make make sense and uh, no decisions have been taken yet whether those um, that, that type of thing will happen in MLS whether we'll use additional subs up to the maximum of five which the IFAB are saying we can do but yeah, I'm expecting that that's, uh, that's quite likely and, and seems to be a sensible, a sensible introduction. So some adjustments, but as normal a game as possible. And I think we have to expect players to play in the normal way um, and uh, do things in the normal way, considering you know, the, um, the need to be, to be sensible throughout. In any tournament-like setting, do you anticipate using your entire complement 
of officials, the full-timers and the part-timers. And to your knowledge, has there been any resistance from any of your staffers who've communicated to you, this is too dangerous, I'm, I'm not interested? So we're working really closely with our match official union. We've got a, a good relationship. We've been working on that for, for months now. It's really co uh, collaborative. Um, and we've uh, created a working party to look at what needs to happen between now and starting live again. Obviously, much of that conversation is dictated by the, uh, the, sort of like the tentative plans that have been put into place by, by the league as well. We, we need to establish um, availability of our officials. Uh, I've already mentioned that some are full-time. We employ some full-time, pay them a full-time salary. Others, we don't. Others have um, other means of employment, of course. Uh, they need to do that, um, such as our, our, many of our assistant referees and our VARs. So some of them won't be in a position to to maybe um, to rejoin um, the return to play uh, from the very start. Um, if we're asking them to, for example, uh, travel to a certain venue and, and to stay there for a period of time um, without being able to, you know, go go home or go to work in between games, then that might not be achievable for some people. Um, we're hoping as many as possible will do uh, that. The, the, the uh, initial feedback we've had has been positive about the numbers and we'll try to create opportunities for everybody who is available because they're, they're really keen to get back onto the field. They're keen to get started again. And, you know, we went through that pre-season in January and February like the players did, building up our, our levels of, you know, fitness and uh, going through lots of uh, technical training, as you can imagine, in that pre-season period. We, we started, started well, a um, couple of rounds uh, under our belts, and then obviously everything stopped, and it stopped for good reason, um, but they're keen to get started again. So we'll try to look to give as many opportunities as we can to those people who can commit the time to whatever the restart looks like. Um, we'll keep working with the others that can't make it, um, who have to stay in their, in their homes, their home markets for whatever reason, family or work, and uh, make sure that they're uh, able to be um, staying in, in fully in contact with us and, and with facilities to keep them um, keep them as sharp as possible. I've had no pushback in terms of the safety issues. I think our workforce is fully confident that the environment will be a safe one, uh, and that um, the testing will be available, and that the uh, the necessary PPE will be available, which obviously we're giving consideration to as well. I think their uh, their overarching sort of um, consideration is you know how quickly we can get back because they're really keen to do so, and they, they trust us to to do it in a safe way. Thank you so much. Our next question will come from Felipe Cardenas. Felipe, your line should be open now. If here in, in MLS there is a, a, a tournament that is focused in one single location, be it Orlando, and it's a two-month type of tournament, you're, with your experience being in World Cups, does how do referees then prepare for being in one single location uh, perhaps is, is there an, do, would you anticipate them kind of tapping into that type of mentality where we are in a tournament type of, of environment, we are in one central location, how does fitness uh, kind of fit into that type of regime if you are centralized? And then my final question is, is on your part from the players, there's a lot of concern about just being match fit. You know, they've been away from full training for so long. They're back in individual training. But one player told us that they would need a minimum of three to four weeks of full team training. Is there any concern on your part for referees getting back and being mentally sharp, physically uh, ready for a match? Yeah. Hi, Philippe. Some really good questions there. And some of the things that you, you've, you've asked, obviously, we've been thinking about over the last few days and, and we'll continue to, to think about and, and put plans in place to address. 
in the coming days. Um, yeah, so having been at many tournaments myself and been um, away for anything up to six weeks, uh, it, it is a different experience. It's different than refereeing a game and then going home after each game back to back to your family. So if that's what the return to play looks like, then it's something that our officials will will need to to cope with, um, and um, and you know we'll be able to prep prep them in as better way, as, as good a way as we can. We uh, we're looking at, at um, ways that we can prepare them for something that would be quite different. You know, if if they go to this possible festival or go to anywhere where there's no fans, for example. That's going to be quite a different experience. These games are going to be competitive when they start again. Uh, they're going to be great content for TV. And uh, and therefore, we're, we're not going to have many officials in our group that's going to have a referee competitive games without fans there. And some, I read somewhere a few days ago that people felt that the referees might somehow uh, benefit from having no fans in the stadium. I take a different view. I think having the fans in the stadium makes, makes us... Um, even better as officials because we feed from from the atmosphere. So one of the things we've been looking to do in the coming weeks is, is maybe bring in some officials who have had experience of refereeing games without fans, uh, fairly recent experience, to share with our group what, what that felt like. Uh, I'm looking to bring in Anthony Taylor from England who refereed a, a Champions League game in uh, in March, in I think in, in PSG without fans in the stadium, just so that he can share that experience with our officials. What was it like? You know, what did you expect, and, and how was it different? Um, and we're looking at doing that with a few other um, guest uh, speakers who are going to come in and share their experience. I'll share my experience, of course, with them in terms of being in tournament settings and how to handle, how to pace yourself at a tournament, how to deal with, you know, uh, being uh, away from from home for for so long. So it will be a different experience, but. We've got a resilient group, we've got a mature group, and uh, they've, uh, they've got a, st- a strong passion for, for the game. In terms of the the amount of time that it uh, that it's going to take to get people back match fit, I know the, uh, the MLS have done a lot of work with looking at the length that the preseason should be, bringing in some experts around that, and we've also um, um, contributed to, to that conversation as well. Um, I'm really keen to make sure that our officials have an opportunity when they... Um, um, arrive at a possible festival that they're given some opportunities to do some scrimmage officiating, some officiating of some training games, because it will be some time since they last took charge of a competitive game, going right back to the 6th and 7th of March. Um, so I'm really keen to make sure they're exposed to some kind of training game um, before we go live with the uh, the first competitive game, just so that they can get back into the um, the flow and the rhythm of, of uh, officiating uh, games. And uh, We'll, we'll, we'll try to secure some opportunities for that to happen as well. Thank you so much. Our next question will go to Olivia Trembley. Olivia, you're open uh, now. Hey, Lauren. Hi, Howard. Um, I was wondering with the announcement today by MLS of this new youth structure, uh, if, uh, for one, if one, uh, this new initiative has any effect or if you have any, any thoughts on how that could impact the development of referees in North America? And secondly, has the uh, current situation, the current pandemic, uh, maybe thrown a curveball your way, maybe thrown a wrench into some of the initiatives for referee development that you have already had uh, in place? Uh, hi there, Howard. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about VAR. It's obviously still quite a, a Marmite thing in the sport, and it is implemented so differently all over the world. From how you've seen it put in place, 
What leagues do you feel are doing it best? And is there anything you would like to change the way that MLS does it? You mentioned it's a, it's a Marmite thing. I don't know if that translates around the, around the world, but um, obviously you mean it splits people's opinion. You either love it or hate it. Uh, we uh, we don't feel it's a Marmite issue. We, we, we love it over here. Um, our officials really enjoy using it. Um, I enjoy seeing it being utilised um, for those occasions when it really does come into its own. We, uh, we're keen to make sure, and we always have been, that it doesn't interfere with the game. It sits there to provide real benefit on those situations that are really difficult for officials to see in full speed, those match-significant situations. And uh, by and large, um, it does that really well. It, it sits in the background um, and, and steps in when it, when it needs to. We, we're continuing to work all the time to try to enhance it, enhance the use of it here with what well, this would be our fourth season now, it will be our fourth season when we start again. And um, we even two weeks ago, we had an online seminar where we went through lots and lots of different situations, looking um, at whether or not an intervention should happen. And um, we were creative in our in our platform in, in, in getting people to, to give their opinion about whether a recommendation for review should or shouldn't happen for certain situations and working through those. Again, always striving for that level of, of consistency and also improving our our procedures to make them as efficient as possible so that things don't take too long. There's no doubt that it gets it gets better the longer that it's implemented. We've seen that in our in our rollout. We've seen that we're much better now than we were three years ago. And that continues. I think you see that you know in every competition around the around the world. We've seen it with uh, other leagues that started with us in our in our seminar a couple of weeks ago, we had representation sorry representatives from the Bundesliga who we have a good relationship uh, with and we we collaborate with. So they came and looked at the online training we were delivering and, and we shared quite a few of their clips with our people as well. And they've done a really good job with their rollout. So we were you know, privileged really to be able to, to share learning with uh, with a competition like that. And uh, we'll be looking in the next few days at how their competition restarts and, and, and the use of their, their VAR. So yeah, so overall, really good introduction to the, uh, to the game. I, I feel it continues to be well accepted here. And uh, we're looking forward to utilising it when we return to play in whatever in whatever um, setting that is in. One thing's for sure, VAR will be involved because we value it in our competition and we feel it plays really well. Um, you mentioned VAR a second ago. I wanted to follow up on that real quick. Um, you know, some of these settings might not have room for as many TV cameras and so on as a full state, as a regular stadium. So take us a little into, you know, whether there have been conversations with the league about ensuring there can be VAR at these venues and also have there been any conversations with IFAB about how referees duties might change now in terms of, I mean, enforcing social distancing wasn't something you gave a yellow card for previously. So uh, has there been anything in that regard? Uh, so on the first question, Jonathan, um, yeah, VAR is, is very much part of the, uh, the, the planning for um, the restart. Um, and Yes, you're right. Of course, you know we could see a different camera configuration than what we've seen in in regular MLS stadiums. But you know, VAR has always, um, or the VAR protocol has always um, included the option to to use a range of camera numbers, and that that that's always happened. I mean, you know, our MLS Cup final has you know more cameras than a, than a regular season game. Some leagues have you know greater numbers than, than others, uh, and we can run it on on less numbers. Um, you know, every camera that's in there is, a, is a, I guess, a bonus in terms of giving you some other angles. But, you know, having six, eight cameras um, is obviously, um, 
something that you can work with and, and will give us angles on situations that the referee couldn't see in, in real time that we can utilize. So we'll work with what we've got. Um, obviously, you know, it's going to be fair across all of the, the teams that are down there uh, because, you know, it's a, it's a festival because they're going to be working on the same same field. So therefore, um, it's going to be, uh, you know, a, a fair addition to the uh, to the competition uh, when, it, when it restarts. And in terms of IFAB instructions about, or FIFA instructions uh, about um, adjustments to the way that the game is, is officiated, um, no, nothing that I've seen, nothing specific. You know, you, you hope people go into these games, you know, with a common sense approach and that they, you know, they understand the need not to, you know, uh, create unnecessary contact and what have you. We'd expect officials to deal with players who are, you know, uh, aggressively coming towards uh, officials to protest anyway in that situation. I, I saw a video a few days ago of a Korean uh, game where the referee um, um, was asked by a player to pick him up by the hand and the referee said, sorry, I can't pick you up. Um, it was quite interesting to see how that was on the mind of that particular official. Um, and again, we'll be reminding our, our referees of the need to to not um, you know, create unnecessary contact when it doesn't need to, to happen uh, and to be sensible and to, you know, to to maintain their personal space. But you know something, Jonathan, that's pretty uh, standard officiating anyway, not to uh, not to get into a player's space, for example, and we hope the players would respect the referee's space in, in the same way. Here's for the eerie silence which echoes around the ground when I've booked a home team's player and it's obvious to everyone that he deserved it. F is the farce into which most games would descend if we weren't there. The G is for the gnarled face of someone who's on £90,000 a week and reckoned he should have had a throw-in. Pro General Manager Howard Webb there, and a lot of interesting stuff I feel came out of that. They are having to go through the same kind of protocols and testing and quarantine as everyone else involved for this. And when you start to factor all these different people in and all these different numbers, it does make you ask, how, how worth is doing this tournament? Much like when it comes to the players, we don't know what the referees' union is going to say to all this either. Although, by the sounds of it, a decision is going to be made pretty soon on all of this. Howard Webb indicating there that the appetite, uh, amongst the referees at least, seems to be very positive. They just want to get back into action, get back to doing their job. So much online stuff that they've been doing just now, which, I mean, must be really, really difficult as well, with so many of them being visually challenged. But it was good to hear from Howard Webb there. I hope you enjoyed it. And we're going to be back with another enjoyable interview in the next part, our feature interview for this episode, with a player much loved by Vancouver Whitecaps fans, the one, the only, Andy O'Brien. And we'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Maxim Kripo from the Vancouver Whitecaps, and you're listening to the EFTN Show.
Welcome back to the AFT and Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. That was the wonderful placebo there, with a song from 2003, Running Up That Hill. A track that has featured in various ways on three different albums by placebo. It was on a bonus disc to their 2003 album Sleeping With Ghosts. It was also featured on their covers album, and then the US version of the 2007 album Meds. It's also the second song from tonight's Three of a Kind feature. Three songs linked in some way, can you work out what they are? So we kicked off part three with Hounds of Love by The Future Heads. Got the second song now, Running Up That Hill by Placebo. Have you worked out what the link might be yet? If you have, what do you think the third song might be? Stay tuned to find out. But now it's time for this week's feature interview. In this episode, we're catching up with a former Whitecaps player, much loved by the Whitecaps fanbase from his two and a half years here in Vancouver, Andy O'Brien. Now, the Republic of Ireland International came to the Whitecaps midway through the 2012 season, signed by Martin Rennie, stayed here until the end of the 2014 season. He'd wanted to stay longer, just couldn't come to terms with the club and the pair parted ways. The Whitecaps proved to be Andy O'Brien's last team that he played for. After an 18-year pro career that saw him start off with Bradford City, move to Newcastle, Portsmouth, Bolton, Leeds, and then on to the Whitecaps. He played numerous seasons in the Premier League. He's played in European competition. He represented the Republic of Ireland, even going with them to the 2002 World Cup in Japan and Korea. Now, Andy's a player that we've spoken to a few times in the show over the years, and we haven't spoken to him for a while. The last time I saw him was in 2017, when he was down in Wales, when the Whitecaps went over there for pre-season, was scouting out Alfonso Davies, partly just to catch up with some of his Whitecaps buddies, but also in his new role as a scout for Liverpool FC. I don't know why we haven't caught up with Andy before now, but you know what it's like, best laid plans and all that. But no better time to do it than just now. So go make your favourite hot beverage, grab a chocolate digestive and sit back and enjoy a chat with Andy O'Brien. Andy O'Brien. Andy, Andy, Andy O'Brien. First thing to ask you, Andy, I mean, you're still very favourably thought of here. You, you were a fan favourite in your two and a half years here. You made 51 appearances. And when you look back at your time in Vancouver, do you, do you look back at it fondly? Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, I think it's been well documented that I was coming off a, a rough period, uh, sort of personally and uh, professionally over in, uh, over in Leeds. So first and foremost to get the opportunity to go somewhere different and um, the way I was sort of accepted and threat and the city itself it, it was it was fantastic um, and if, if I'm being honest I was probably a bit disappointed with one of the seasons when I got injured uh, Seattle away but the following season I was in the last one I was determined to come back a bit um, to try and uh, stay longer but 
I know at first you, you kind of had your doubts about coming over here and uh, you weren't really sure and the club gave you a bit of an, an extension to to have a think about it. What eventually convinced you to, to make the move? Um, well, I think Martin Rennie deserves the majority of the credit. Um, there was a deadline at the time to get the signing done and I just said to him, listen, it was too short a notice given that I was potentially moving 5,000 miles away somewhere where I'd never been visited. And I think one of the biggest issues was that I didn't want to make the move and then come to training and, you know, be asked, is everything all right? And you go, yeah, everything's great. And then you go back home, uh, you know, and you sit in your flat for the majority of the day. Yeah. Um, and then you put my face the following day. So being able to be given that little bit more time to fly over, have a look around the city, look at the, the ground, look at the plans of what the club were, were trying to do. And just meet the manager. I just thought this is this was the right right thing to do, having come and visited. And I mean, you'd obviously played at a high level in, in the Premier League. You'd represented Ireland. You'd you played at, at, at top top levels. How did you find the the quality of MLS back there? I mean, it's changed a lot since you were even in the league. It's it's got a lot better. But how did you find it back then? Yeah, I thought it was good. I thought at the time, I, I think it was a mix of extremely athletic, straight-line running type mm. um, and some more smaller, gifted, technical, tricky types, maybe from South America. But gradually, the, I think, like you say, the market in the MLS has changed. Um, I think there's a lot of clubs that are looking at it, like European models, certainly Atlanta, uh, probably one of the biggest examples in terms of speculating a lot of money on some players um, at the right age who have got more development in them, given that platform to, you know, certainly Ireland to play in such a fantastic environment with the training ground, with the size of the stadium. And uh, as a dream proved, you know, with Almiron, and I'm sure there'll be others uh, in the future, not necessarily from Atlanta, but throughout the league. Um, I mean, you've got the, uh, you've seen proof in the club in, in terms of uh, with Davies, how, how well he's done. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's a league that is, uh, is certainly on the way up and um, has gained a lot of credit um, by some of the fees that are being paid for some of the players to both depart and also come in. It's, there's so many differences in the league here in that you're, you're playing on plastic pitches, although I know there's more and more coming out in the, in the game in, in the UK, although maybe not at the top level. And then you've got travel that was... Like way more than than you would have been anything used to. I mean, how did you find all that? A, a lot of guys that I speak to, especially the UK guys that have come over, the travel in particular is the big thing that they really struggle to adjust to. Yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. I don't know if it was possibly the time of my career, and I knew that it was probably my time was coming to an end. But the opportunity to sort of travel and go to different cities, and um, like you say, I think one of the biggest issues was. For me, was uh, like the different altitudes. Certainly, I remember playing at Real Salt Lake City, and uh, I think there were a couple of goals down, certainly one down early on. And part of it was just due to feeling a little bit dizzy, you know, with the uh, yeah. your breath and trying to get into the tempo of the game. Um, but, well, like I said, I don't know if it was um, sort of <laughs> me as a person, but I, I enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed going to different stadiums and 
travelling and, uh, and experience different sort of cities and, and playing in them. Now, when we came up with our white caps of the, of the decade on our website, we actually had you in as, as one of the starting centre backs alongside Kendall Waston. I mean, you, you had your two and a half years here. When you look back in particular, is there any standout moments or any games that really stick in your memory that will always be with you? Well, I suppose one of the standout moments, and uh, it gets shown probably more than anything else, uh, was the beginning against San Jose away um, when we won and had a little bit of a ding dong with uh, their centre forward. But um, no, I, I just I just enjoyed all of it really. I think um, you know I did a like I said I did an interview recently with. Whitecaps and you know even getting the sky train and uh, going around coffee shops enjoying the city you know the life that I had outside of the pitch which I thoroughly enjoyed was as enjoyable uh, off it so you know that, that's why I was sort of keen to, to carry on as long as possible really because uh, you know I thoroughly enjoyed my time. And I, some folk will know that you're involved with scouting with Liverpool just now. And so, I mean, obviously you're going to be coming across lots of like new talents and existing talents. Do, do you have people like picking your brains as to what it's like over here or, or asking for for advice? And, and like, would you recommend that, that players come over? Yeah, I'd definitely recommend it. I don't, uh, no, I don't get asked too much um, about it, obviously, one of my regions, probably scouting in DMLS. Um, having played there, so I have a little bit more of a understanding about, like you say, the travel and the conditions and things like that, and, and different climates and stuff. But no, I would I would recommend it to to any player. Again, it, you know, a lot of things are circumstantial, and any deal getting done, it's whether the, you know at the time I didn't have a family, you know, that that might be a consideration for some people. Um, but at, at the time of where I was in my career and the age I was in my personal circumstances, I couldn't have probably gone to a, to a better uh, environment, um, city club um, at that time. So, yeah, um, in terms of what I recommend to me going to Vancouver, 100% I would, yeah. But I appreciate there's a lot of other things that came to, to getting a con- contract done, sorted and sealed and whatnot. And the White Cats were the, the last team that that you played for, and I know you'd hoped to stay on. And you said at the time you didn't leave be, because of money; it was just that you wanted kind of to know what your role was going to be and, and responsibilities at the club. So when you left here, I mean, did you think about continuing playing, or or did you think, no, this is this is really the best time to to just hang my boots up? Yeah, I mean, I, I did want to stay. I think looking back, uh, I wanted a two-year contract. If possible because I think I was a year away from getting my citizenship. Uh-huh. Me and my partner, now Martin, now wife, now Kerry, um, were contemplating you know, starting a family. Uh, I was happy at the club. I thought I'd come off the back of a decent last season. And it was sort of explained to me that it would set a bad, bad precedent for the league if uh, a 30, what was it, 35 year old was given a two year contract. So I was offered a one year contract, uh, Carl had explained to me that I wouldn't play maybe as much or as many games as I would have wanted to, so I'd, I'd explained to him that I wasn't there uh, for a holiday, and uh, would it be possible to maybe do some coaching, or if I didn't travel to away games, you know, be involved in that side of it, and I never really got an answer from Carl, and it was a bit of fell on deaf ears, so yeah, it just got announced that um, we hadn't agreed, which was a little bit frustrating, um, but in terms of 
yeah, monetary, I think I was offered $100,000 for my final year. And truth be told, and I did say this to a member of the Whitecaps after it being announced, I would have taken $50,000 for the first year and $50,000 for the second year. It wasn't, it wasn't a monetary thing. It was more trying to squeeze out as much as I could out of myself uh, and make it last as long as possible, from, certainly from a playing perspective. Um, but also, you know, hopefully being able to offer something to, you know, the younger players that they could. When, when players hang their boots up, especially when you go back to the UK, you've got so many options. You, you can go into coaching, you could go into television punditry, even stuff like that. Why Why was scouting what you, what you wanted to go into? I mean, did you think about coaching or did you always fancy the, the life of a scout? Um, no, I, I suppose, I think in, in football and in any walk of life, I think you need, it helps if the boss likes you. And, um, you know, when I was over in Vancouver, I've always kept in touch with Michael Edwards, uh, who's a sporting director at Liverpool for my time at Portsmouth. And, you know, when I was coming to sort of the end of my career, I asked him about, you know, what the opportunities were for scouting. So, in some respects, I, I fell into it. I think the automatic thing would have possibly to gone into coaching. But, again, sometimes it's who you know and it's about getting that opportunity to coach. Um, and there's probably a lot of good coaches that don't get that opportunity because, yeah. you know, the face doesn't fit or um, whatever. Um, you know, certainly through the younger years of my career I was looked after when I was at Bradford by senior pros Bobby Robson was always fantastic you know, then I had the other end of the stick where at Portsmouth I had Harry Redknapp who I wasn't part of his plans so yeah I think um, you know at the end of the day you can be very good at your job or you can be really poor at your job but I think if you've got people that make decisions that want you to be there I think that also has a big bearing on stuff so um, yeah in terms of the scouting I probably fell into it in that respect and, uh, you know, I've been doing it for what, five and a half years. So, um, I think there is, a, there is a worry when you do finish playing that uh, what are you going to do because there's only so many managers' jobs, coaching jobs uh, that are available. Um, so, to go into something that was not exactly what I'd done but it was in the same industry but in a different sort of area. Um, at such a big club, uh, which has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, it's um, you know it's, it's been been an insightful experience and one I've enjoyed. Scouting's uh, something which it's always fascinated me. It's like one of what I would say is a dream job in football. Would I love to have done something like that? I, I, I've read the book like the Northwear Men by Michael Calvin. It's all about scouts and stuff. I don't know if you've read that, but I mean it paints a. A picture of a tough life, travelling around a lot, long hours. I mean, how do you find that and balance it with, with having a family? Yeah, I mean, Liverpool have been fantastic. I mean, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of the scouting or a lot of games, because I do it at sort of senior level, majority, the majority of my work is senior level. Um, there's loads of different companies that provide platforms to be able to watch games. So, you know, sometimes rather than travelling four hours to a game, four hours back, and then the game itself and being out for... 10 hours, you know, in that 10 hour period you could watch a hell of a lot of games, you know, via video. So it's about balancing the two. But yeah, it's um, it's interesting, I mean, ultimately, scouts don't 
uh, made the decisions on whether players get signed or not. You know, there's a lot more input that goes into that. But in terms of sometimes being able to highlight the player or recommend the player, and if you feel confident, you know, being given the instruction and autonomy to to, you know, to push that player. And if if you're lucky enough that they do get signed, then you know, I'm sure it's it's nice for everybody and all of the individuals included. But yeah, it's, um, as you can appreciate, it's quite a, a complex, complex job to get uh, a player signed and filled and over the line, I would have thought. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you've had such a varied career yourself, and if we kind of just look back a little bit over it for the, the kind of second half of this interview, I mean, when when you were growing up, what team did you support? Because obviously there's a few in Yorkshire. Like, were you a Leeds fan? No, I was a Tottenham fan. Oh. I think me and my brother originally supported uh, Liverpool League. Uh, and then because of, I think there's four and a half years between me and my brother, and then obviously, like any brothers, they sort of had a disagreement. So I then decided to support Tottenham. <laughs> and Gary Mabbert, um, Gary Mabbert was there, Gasco and Lineker and Waddle. Um, as far as uh, Pat Mann and Hal, Vinny Samways. So, yeah, I, I was a fan of them. And then, I, I suppose, uh, in terms of supporting teams, I think once you get into the industry, you support yourself to a certain extent. You know, you need to make sure that, uh, you know, whether it is when I, when I left school at 16, uh, I got my apprenticeship. Yeah, you, you just crack on from there. I, was, I was obviously went to Bradford to start off with, and I used to get there very early because my dad was a milkman, and one of his customers used to drive me over. So I'd get there about 8 o'clock and I'd have a sleep on the physio's bench because we didn't need to be in till 9 o'clock. <laughs> and then about quarter to 9, the Mary, the kit woman, would say to me, will I go to the shop to go get a turn on cigarettes? So about quarter to 9, so I used to get them. And then, yeah, that was it. You'd do a full day um, training, cleaning, just cleaning all the boots and cleaning the floors and mopping and doing the laundry and stuff like that. And then I'd get a bus two buses back and then get picked up from the local cinema at Harrogate uh, about six o'clock in the evening and then repeat again. So, um, yeah, it's uh, certainly been at home. I feel like I'm back in my apprentice days, not in the floor. Yeah, it was a hard experience, I think. You know, I think at the time we used to get £25 a week as well. So, um, you know, when you look at some of the... I think the football's changed in the respect that the younger players now are the desirable ones, as opposed to being you know, the cheap ones to run. I mean, that's just it. Everyone looks at the, the life of a footballer nowadays and they think it's a glamorous thing and they're making lots of money and young guys that want to be footballers just see that side of it. But it, it was hard back in the day and you really did serve an apprenticeship cleaning other players' boots, the senior players' boots and, and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, you really had to earn your opportunity. Nothing was handed to you. And you, you started off in the Leeds system, then you moved to Bradford and you, you signed your, your pro deals with Bradford. And like the, the years that you had at Bradford, five seasons, I think it, it was. I mean, it was such an eventful time. You were with the team when they got promoted to the Premiership. You played with them in the Premiership. There was that dramatic last day escape as well I mean it, it just seemed a, a fantastic place for a young lad to, to start off his career yeah it was uh, I think it was 
you know, some of it looking back was, was quite hard. I remember, you know, Paul Jill was, was my manager when we got to the Premier League and uh, he was my, he was an ex-player at the time. Uh, well, he'd been a player at the time and then uh, Brad Sidden then got onto the coaching staff and when he was the assistant. I don't know if it was from Harrogate because Harrogate's known as a little bit of a, a nicer area than, than some of the places in Yorkshire and whether I needed toughening, toughening up or not. And I remember him saying to me, you know, you, you'll never ever go down and just never ever show weakness to, to an opponent. And uh, I remember training one day in, uh, down at Happy Bridge, it's cold, and uh, I bought this sliding tackle and uh, I felt like a sharp sort of stinging on my knee. And uh, I'd gashed all my knee open. Ooh. So I looked down and, and I thought, oh, I better not say anything because I've been told not to complain. So <laughs> when I looked at it, it, was, it wasn't. <laughs> so I went over to Chris Kamara, who was the manager at the time, said, uh, Gaffer, I said, I think I've done something to my knee. So he was like, you need to get up to hospital straight away. I'd got like I needed 30 stitches in my knee. Um, and uh, yeah, just looking back, it was, it, yeah, it, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was bullying, but it, it was a, quite a hard upbringing. Um, mm. But in terms of the experience that I got, being able to play a lot of games at championship level and then getting promoted to the Premier League, um, like you say, that last day against Liverpool, who I think Liverpool, if they'd won, would have got in the Champions League, and if we'd won, we'd have, uh, we'd have stayed up. Was problem, probably the most important game in my career, because... I think off the back of playing in the Premier League for those two seasons, although I went in the March the following year to Newcastle when the old Trumps were dead man, I think if I had not played in the Premier League, uh, I think there would have been question marks about me in the sense that, I mean, I do scouting now. And, you know, it, it's quite difficult because you're, you're always judging people and certain people have certain styles. And I was quite a... I was not the most aesthetically pleasing runner. Uh, I was extremely... Uh, skinny and slight and had I not played in the Premier League there may have been question marks as to you will get eaten alive in the Premier League but having played there being there that year that we stayed up and then to get another year in the league I think it was a defining moment in my career um, and enabled me then to move on to Newcastle and then again uh, Newcastle that year that I moved were in a I wouldn't say relegation scrap, but they were low down in the league and, you know, with the, a third of the season to go, they still could have been relegated over a quarter. They obviously stayed up and then the following year um, we finished third, then the year out fourth and fifth, you know, we played in the Champions League. And again, I think the defining moment, the, the second year that we could have qualified for the Champions League, we went out to the qualifying stages uh, to get into the first group stage. The part of on Belgrade with, uh, with the penalty shootout. And I think, again, you know, having, if we could have got into the Champions League for a second season, you know, it, it would have lifted your profile. And again, goes on the CV um, that, you know, you tried and tested at a level. And, you know, proof is in the pudding that if, if you do if you do play at those levels, then, you know, I've been, I was fortunate enough to stay in the Premier League for the majority of my career. Yeah, and I think most folk will probably best remember you. From your time at Newcastle, and I, I dug out an interview I did with you back in in twenty twelve. I was just listening to it last night, but before calling you today, and we were talking about that famous goal that you scored in the derby against Sunderland, and I know it was one of your first games there. And there's the chant ab- about them, and you said in the interview, "Well, if I ever have kids, it's going to be a nice story to 
to tell my kids in the future. So, I mean, is that is that the story you're going to be telling your kids for years to come? Yeah, hopefully, yeah. I was, I was listening to, I think it would have gone perfect on an interview recently, I don't know what you saw on the internet, talking about his 14-year-old son who was on the bench for his luck for his team that he plays for. And, um, you know, his dad was just saying to him that, uh, you know, my, my duty as a father is to make sure that you, you're a good boy. Um, and, you know, the point that he was making was that uh, he said, you, you sound like a little bit of a loser complaining that you're on the bench because of this, this and this. And I think as a parent, you know, you uh, if they're interested in football and stuff like that, I'm sure that they'll be excited to to, to see or to hear that that song. Um, but if, you never know, they might, they might hate football, they might yeah. be interested in, in it. But, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I've got Leo, my 10 months old at the minute, uh, kicking a football around or trying to anyway. <laughs> More left foot than right footed at the minute, so you never know. And when you were at Newcastle as well, you were you were involved, although I know you weren't on the pitch at the time, but you were involved in one of the standout moments really in, in Premier League history, which was the fight between Lee Boyer and Kieran Dyer. I was just watching Match of the Day a couple of weeks ago and they had their top 10 bonkers moments and that, that was one of them. And then Alan Shearer was talking about Soonest afterwards had said, I'll fight both of you. And I would probably have fancied Soonest to win that. But what was it like watching that from the bench and just seeing two of your teammates just go at it on the pitch? Yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit of a crazy moment. I, I mean, I remember that game. Uh, I got substituted because I wasn't playing too well uh, in that game. And then that, that just escalated. And yeah, I, I don't know. It was, it was a crazy moment. I'm, I never really, we never really, oh, I didn't get to the bottom of what it was about or anything, but, um, yeah, it's sure there must have been something other than what was said on the pitch at that particular time, but yeah, it was a, it was a not moment, and, um, yeah, it was, uh, I think, I think there was a transitional time as well, obviously, when Bobby Robson went, it was, uh, I think a lot of people saw it too, I mean, I certainly was, but, yeah, it was one of them crazy moments. Yeah. Just last couple of things. Uh, obviously, you were involved with the Irish team set up as well, and you went to the World Cup and spoke to you about that. Your time at the World Cup when you were here, but one thing I never did ask is how how did you come on Ireland's radar? How how did you qualify exactly for Ireland? Um, I qualified because my dad dad's parents were were born in uh, a town called Kilfinnan in County Limerick and. The backstory was my dad was one of ten. He's my dad's the second oldest, but the oldest Paddy was born in Ireland. And while uh, Paddy uh, was beginning to uh, was growing, and my grandma, uh, my granddad disappeared. He got up on a boat to, to Liverpool, then Liverpool ended up in Harrogate. And my grandma Kitty had Paddy, and then located where he was in Harrogate, and then had another nine kids. Um, so that that is in effect how um, I qualified for Ireland. I did play for England under 18 and I think 21. Yeah. Um, I put a found the team sheet recently at the end the French under 21 team and there was some been on replays in it but some other other good players that you know you look back over the years and you go he played there he played at Inter Milan he played there so I think Sylvester played as well. So uh, I think we won two one as well but yeah, I, I just I felt more at home with the Ireland setup when I when I went there and 
obviously the older you get, you know, you need to make a decision and uh, I chose to play for Ireland. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the other thing, you've always been very open uh, about your, your battles with, with depression. And I know before you came to the Whitecaps, you were with Leeds, and that was when it all kind of really kind of sprung up. Looking at the time as it is just now, for, I've read a few things, players in Scotland, they seem to be really struggling just now with their mental health. What would your advice be to players that are struggling at a time like this? Or just anyone, not even players? That's great. Thank you so much for, for your time today, Andy. Take care and hopefully we'll we'll see you over here again someday soon. Well, Zach and me will take you for a curry when you do. <laughs> I look forward to it. That's great. Thanks so much, Andy. You take care and good luck with the, the birth. Great stuff from Andy O'Brien there, really enjoyed catching up with him. Be good to see him back in Vancouver at some point, and as I said, we'll take him out for a curry, we'll enjoy that. And it was especially good for Andy to take time out of his, his day to chat to us, because his wife is very far gone pregnant. She's expecting that their second boy this coming Tuesday, so we wish them all the very best for that. 
And I'm sure when Whitecaps fans hear him chat there about how he wanted to stay and just the opportunity didn't come for him to stay another year. I mean, it's disappointing. I'd love to have seen Andy here for for another season. It was another season as well that would have allowed him to to probably apply to, to become a citizen here as well. Certainly at least permanent residency. And then who knows how his, his career might have gone after that. He might have stayed into the coaching staff here, which is something that he, he obviously wanted to do. And then just things sadly didn't work out. But he's very happy where he is. It must be a very exciting time to be at Liverpool with the club just going from strength to strength, as he said there, and on the verge of winning their first Premiership title for many a year. And Andy's been very open about his struggles with mental health over the years, first really coming to prominence in 2011 when he was with Leeds United. And as we talked about in the interview there, at times like this, locked away from family, friends, loved ones, not able to to go about your business the, the way that you want, it is affecting many people's mental health. And a lot of footballers have been affected by this. And it's good to, to talk about these things and get it out in the open. And that's just what we're going to do in the next part, when we're going to hear how the Whitecaps and also FC Cincinnati are handling issues around players' mental health and well-being. We'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Alfonso Davies, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Welcome back to the final part of tonight's AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And that was the final song from tonight's Three of a Kind. Three songs linked in some way. Did you work out what this week's link was? We started off part three with Hounds of Love by the Future Heads. Part four kicked off with Placebo running up that hill. And you just heard the third song just now from English band China Drum from 1996 the B-side to the Can't Stop These Things single, Wuthering Heights. And the link was, all three songs were covers of Kate Bush songs. If you're a Kate Bush fan, you would have worked that out fairly easily. But did you know what the third song was going to be? I guess it had to be Wuthering Heights, it was her most famous song. Three really good versions there. There's a couple of others that nearly made it into the mix, especially Hue and Cries, the cover of The Man with the Child in His Eyes, which is an absolutely fantastic slow piano version that they do so you can check that one out on YouTube as well and as we mentioned in the last part this is a time that is affecting many people's mental health whether that's general members of the public to footballers and I think mental health in football it's always been a kind of subject that it's never really talked about enough I mean they do some great stuff here with the Bell Let's Talk Day as we've talked about in the show before it really shouldn't just be a Let's Talk Day it should be Every day 
should be let's talk. And if people are struggling with their mental health, they, they should feel no stigma and no embarrassment to come out and talk about that. And I think it is something that that many people just, they still don't know how to, to come out and talk about it. They don't know who to turn to. They don't want to burden people with their problems or they, in, in some cases, they don't want to, to maybe be seen as being weak because they, they've got some mental health problems. And that's something which in football, I think it's still very prevalent because you, you've, you've still got in, in some areas, I don't know if it's as much over here, but I know back in the UK, you've still got that kind of masculinity thing. It's like, oh, I can't share my feelings as a footballer. I've got to be a man. It's a man sport and all that crap and all that nonsense, which, which I would have hoped we would have moved on from by now. But unfortunately, we haven't in a number of cases. And mental health, where it's depression, suicidal thoughts or just... Everything that goes with, with with just mental well-being, it's still a subject in sport and in football that I don't think gets the attention that it should. And I do feel that there's a lot of people struggling with it that just never come out and, and admit it. Andy O'Brien was fantastic for that when he was here. He was a great spokesperson for that. It wasn't his plan. It's just he felt very open about talking about it. His issues came to light when he was with Leeds United just before he came to Vancouver and a lot of that stemmed from the death of his good friend Gary Speed, who was obviously another player who had been suffering with mental health and then sadly took his own life and people just didn't know the struggles that he had been going through. Andy thankfully got help and then came over here and felt getting away from the spotlight of the UK press in particular and just being free to be free and just be a normal person here in Vancouver. It really helped with his mental well-being. And when all of the coronavirus lockdowns and everything started and football getting cancelled, I I read a sad but an interesting article in the Daily Record in Scotland about a charity there, a mental health charity called Charity Back Onside. Now it was set up by the partner of former Hebs and Scotland player Gary O'Connor. He's an ambassador for the charity. His partner Libby Emerson runs it. And before the lockdown, she was touring Scotland, speaking to clubs and players about the need to look after their mental health. The article in the Daily Record was talking about that the charity was mentioning that four Scottish footballers had been saved from suicide by the charity in in the past week. As the the shutdown kind of hit home, people were worried about their, their futures financially. Could they pay their bills? Could they handle all this? Could they be locked away? Everything like that, and players were just really, really struggling. They also revealed that 40 footballers and just members of the public are in a three-month counselling course, but they said that they felt that those numbers were just really the tip of the iceberg for the issues that involve in the Scottish game. And you can be sure it exists everywhere in the world, including Major League Soccer, Canadian Premier League. All these leagues are going to have players that are suffering to various degrees with, with mental health. I'm hoping to get someone from the charity on the show in the future weeks just to to talk about things. But I thought it was good to start this discussion with having Andy on the show and then to play a little bit of audio that I've kind of gathered over the last couple of weeks. We're going to hear from two MLS teams, the the Whitecaps and FC Cincinnati. Mark Panis, one of the guys from the Whitecaps, just chatting about what they're looking to do to make sure that their players' mental health and mental well-being is fully taken care of during this time. 
Now, these interviews and these chats were done before the teams were getting back into training. So that will obviously help some of these players a little bit as well. But it's interesting to hear what the clubs have been doing to kind of address this. So, so let's hear what they had to say. I was wondering, how has this uh, impacted some of the, the foreign players on the Whitecaps? I mean, it's, it's hard enough to be in isolation as a native living here, but I imagine it's increasingly difficult for players and families from other countries who may not speak the language or know the medical system. And just being in another country, why all this is going down? That, that's a great question. And it's one that's been in the forefront of all of our minds, of our, of our medical support team. You know, under the leadership of uh, Dr. Ben Spohr, we've been addressing these at many levels. When we did the call on Sunday, it was a tag team with someone who speaks Spanish. Uh, that was our, the most prevalent language we have in the team. We recognize that the team that has been put together is a young team, and we're aware that their various skills um, can be more challenged. Some of them are on their own. It's being addressed. We have mental health uh, uh, practitioners working with the team and with the players to help assist them with that. Um, we're looking at measures in terms of getting food to them and, um, uh, you know, let alone, um, you know, their physical needs. Uh, they've already done using this platform here. They've done a workout remotely from home run by John Poley, our strength and conditioning. So we're getting very creative in order to uh, address all of our players' needs. I have, uh, they all have my phone number, my, my email, my text, and they'll text me specific issues as they, uh, as they come up. Because we want to make it very important that they're, that they're supported and, and guided so we can help them make um, you know, the right decisions and, again, stick to that same messaging stay home and, uh, and follow physical distancing. And I'm, I haven't heard of any specific issues with players or concerns. I think that's because we're, we are ahead of the curve. I don't want to suggest it's easy for them. It isn't, but we're really trying to, uh, you know, just trying to stay ahead of it and on top of it. By nature, footballers and football, it's a, it's a social game. So footballers are used to being in the company of their teammates. So aside from the physical aspect of, of this time and this virus, what are the club doing to ensure that the player's mental health is actually okay? Because in a number of cases, people might not want to speak about how they're, they're doing mentally. I, I, I can speak to that, Mike. I mean, that, that, that's a great point. And, uh, you know, we have within our club, we have uh, mental health performance staff already that are, are part of the team and uh, they're able to repurpose their skills and expertise into this area and stay a step ahead of it. They are, much like I'm doing my updates from a medical point of view, they are looking at the mental health side and sharing with the players in various formats from uh, written to uh, there will be some conferencing, I'm sure, as well. That will be coming up. I'm not uh, privy to the details at this point because it's evolving as we speak. But, you know, a lot of the simple principles from a mental health point of view uh, will be, uh, you know, will be there. In some ways, some of these young athletes are a little bit better adapted to the technology side of it because they're used to using their phones and playing games on their phones and interacting with people all over the world from their phones. Um, so it's really that physical part that's, uh, that, that's challenging. But again, 
for example, yesterday, by doing a, a group workout using this forum, they can feel connected, if not physically, at least socially, and you know, trying to stay ahead of that. The call that I did on, on Sunday when I shared the information, again, it was basic information. They really appreciated it. That was a group call. They felt the connection as a group during that call. So it keeps them, uh, you know, keeps them um, you know, together. Also, just so you know, um, our sporting director, Axel Schuster, and our head coach, Martha Santos, have been um, in regular phone contact, like concerted efforts to make sure they call and talk with each player on a very regular basis. The players are themselves in contact with each other. Of course, we have a first-team WhatsApp group chat where there's daily updates posted as well. We have a uh, multi-person um, football operations team who are in constant contact with the players as well. So there's a lot going on. It, it, um, as you would know, Michael, if, if, uh, if you're a player in East Fife, nothing, uh, nothing beats seeing Bayview Stadium packed. But uh, in, in the meantime, everyone's trying to get along the best they can. Very true. Is there anything that, that that you try to do since this is such a such an unusual time um, and the players are isolated a lot like we are? Um, is there anything that you try to do to just kind of make sure that the, the kind of the mental wellness, um, just team building exercises, or just regular communication with players to kind of keep guys upbeat since it is such a unique circumstance that they're all in? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's. Yeah, I think that's a huge component, and I think as much for for international players or players that don't actually live in markets, it's it's different because you know I know myself as a as an international here, you know there's that unknown really about what's happening back home, and obviously we can communicate via FaceTime like everybody else, but there's that which I think we need to be we need to be aware of as well that some of our players are away from the families, so I think it's really important that we can support them from a communication perspective, and then also really try and engage the players and we spoke we spoke yesterday as a as a technical staff um via skype which we're doing a lot of this time um, and really seeing if we can try and use this period for the players one to engage them and then see if we can try and get better both individually or collectively so what we did uh we send like a quite a basic questionnaire out to the guys just to get them to respond uh this was this was an idea from from the technical staff but for driven by Johan de may uh, the interim head coach and get our guys to, to self-reflect a little bit on their strengths and weaknesses from a physical and a tactical and a mental component. And then look then also what, what are their goals, both short-term and long-term, and then really try and see what, what plan we can put in place around that and and sort of triage the players into different areas. So one player, it might be from like a, you know, like a tactical awareness perspective, and then we can use our video analysts with coaches to do a little bit of one-on-one via uh, via Skype or use technology that way where we can sort of get them to have a look at some clips of themselves still thinking about the game and we can you know we can communicate with them from a coaching perspective you know as, as I said like players have muscle imbalance so if they've had previous injuries they can still have that one-on-one communication with injured players and, and anybody like I say a younger player if we're talking about lifestyle or meals or anything like that we can have regular communication with them around that way so it allows our whole sort of technical staff to try and take a um, more of an individual emphasis with the players and also it allows the players to, to use this period to try and improve an aspect of something that they couldn't otherwise have done. And I think that's probably a little bit of a better way to get engagement from the guys is that something that they want to improve on and how we as a club can try and facilitate that.
So that was Vancouver Whitecaps CEO Mark Panis and the Whitecaps Chief Medical Officer Dr Jim Bovard chatting about the mental health of players there and the importance of this at this time. Along with FC Cincinnati's Director of Sports Performance Gary Walker who previously worked out a long time with Man United over in England. It's certainly been good to, to hear from these guys and some of the other clubs as well just about what they are doing to, to help with players' mental health and a lot has fallen on the senior players to make sure that they do look after the younger ones on the team, especially when you've got players like in Vancouver where you've got like Ranko and Leo Russo and Janio Bikel who have basically just arrived in the city and immediately in lockdown without really getting to know their teammates, the city or anything like that. And we've already spoken to Janio and Ranko on the show, as you'll have heard in recent weeks, and both have been very, very complimentary about what the Whitecaps have done to look after them in this time. But that's nearly it for this week's show. But we cannot have a AFT and soccer show without having Wavelength, our section of the show where we play you a song all about football. And this week we're going to celebrate the return of the Bundesliga, continuing our songs about football clubs. And we're heading over to Germany for a song by German punk band Nada, partly in English. They brought out three albums between 2003 and 2012. This song is from their 2005 album, Zukalt, which means too cold. And this is their tribute to Hamburg's Saint Pauli. Hamburger Wetter, wir singen Hamburger Wetter. 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 Walk on, walk on, with soul in your heart and you never. Scheiß nicht, Tatsara! Wir singen Scheiß nicht, Tatsara! Scheiß nicht, Tatsara! Wir singen Scheiß nicht, Tatsara! 
German band Nada there with their tribute to Hamburg football team San Pauli. But that is it for this week's show. Thanks to Zach for joining us as always. You can find him on Twitter at ZacharyAM. You can find me on Twitter, Michael McCall, at AFTN Canada. Find us on Instagram at AFTN Soccer and on YouTube at AFTN Canada. We're hopefully going to have another video going up on that this week, another one of the animated ones from Ryan Tomshek. So check that out as well. We'll be back next week with another patch show. Until then, thanks for listening. Take care, stay home, stay safe, stay healthy, and wash those hands. Bye, everyone. Going to your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life.